0: optimal minimum. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would've a perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism living tissue over metal endoskeleton.
1: Me, too,
0: This episode is brought to you by 99designs. 99designs is the global creative platform that makes it easy for designers and clients to work together. From logos to apps, business cards, packaging to books, you name it, 99designs is the go-to design resource for any budget. Right now, my listeners, that's you guys, can get $50 off a logo and brand identity package from 99designs, plus a free upgrade that lets you promote your project on the platform. Which is an additional $99 value by checking out 99designs.com forward slash Tim50. That's T I M 50. So 99designs.com forward slash Tim50. As many of you know, I've used 99designs for many, many years now. I've used them for book covers, including mock-ups for The 4-Hour Body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller, illustrations for the multi-volume The Tao of Seneca, it's an ebook series basically, and other graphic design projects, and I've been very impressed by the quality of their designers and illustrators. And you can check out all sorts of stuff like The Tao of Seneca to get an idea. Uh, they're, they're really mind-boggling. Most recently, I used 99designs to update the illustrations and layout of my Five Morning Rituals ebook. This is a PDF that I offer as an incentive to get people to sign up for my newsletter. The illustrations inside are gorgeous, and I loved working with the designer who we ended up selecting for the project. You can take a look at that. This is a real world example of the type of thing that I use 99 Designs for at 99designs.com forward slash Tim50. 99designs' designer search tool connects you directly with one designer based on design category or industry specialization, style, skill level, availability, and more. You just check off the boxes that you need to satisfy, the criteria you want, and it will bring up the best matches. Or you can start a contest. You invite the entire community to take a shot at your project, then you pick your favorite. So... To get $50 off your first logo and brand identity package, as well as additional promotion on the platform with the free upgrade, please visit 99designs.com forward slash Tim50. That's 99designs.com forward slash Tim50 and click on the link on the landing page. Check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim50. This episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Web, which makes a CBD oil. A hemp extract that has become one of my go-to tools. Now, I have never really talked about CBD oil, and cannabis has never really been the plant for me. I know we're talking about hemp, uh, but nonetheless, after several nights of inexplicable insomnia, this was about a year ago. I just could not get to sleep to save my life, and after other fixes failed, so melatonin, California poppy extract, da 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 da. An elite athlete introduced me to this non psychoactive extract, and bam. Problem solved. I had some of the best sleep that I'd had in months. Now, I don't use sleep aids on a daily basis, but this has become part of my toolkit, and I hope to be exploring other applications soon. CBD oil products have exploded in popularity in the health and wellness and fitness worlds, and Charlotte's Web is one of the top players that offers broad-spectrum hemp extract with CBD in the form of oils, capsules, and topical products. Charlotte's Web products will not get you high, so that maybe that is good news, maybe bad news to you, but it does have some powerful benefits and uh, applications, and it works with your body's existing endocannabinoid system, endo meaning from within, like endo versus exoskeleton, for instance, so endocannabinoid system works with your body. Some of the most common uses are for relief from everyday stressors, help in supporting restful sleep, which is what I most often use it for. Uh, to bring about a sense of calm and focus. A lot of my friends use it for that. CBD is also known or becoming known for helping athletes to recover from exercise induced inflammation charlotte's web hemp extract has naturally occurring terpenes flavonoids and other valuable hemp compounds that work synergistically to heighten positive effects sometimes referred to as the entourage effect which you guys can look up making it more complete than single compound cbd alternatives or at least that is what i've been told Uh, i do not know much about cbd alternatives nor single compound in any case Check it out. This stuff has really worked for me. So jump over to CWHemp.com forward slash Tim. CW is in Charlotte's Web. CWHemp.com forward slash Tim to take a quick quiz which will determine the best product for your particular aims, lifestyle, etc. And they ship to all 50 states. Charlotte's Web are offering listeners of this podcast 10% off of their purchase. While there are some exclusions, I personally use the Extra Strength CBD oils or the Extra Strength capsules, and uh, you can see what might be a fit for you on that page. And there is a 30-day risk-free guarantee, so why not try it out? So get 10% off of your purchase at cwhemp.com forward slash Tim. And disclaimer, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Enjoy. Why, hello, you sexy little minx. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to interview and deconstruct world-class performers, whether they come from the worlds of chess, sports... Business, it really doesn't matter. We're trying to spot patterns of excellence. What are the habits, the routines, the favorite books, the morning exercises, whatever it might be that you can test and apply in your own lives? And my guest today is a friend. We've been trying to make the podcast happen for quite a few years now, and he is a polymath. You need to listen to this episode. Nick Kokonis is his name. Last name is spelled K-O-K-O-N-A-S, Nick Kokonas on Instagram, at N on Twitter, at Nick Kakonis. Nick is the co-owner and co-founder of the Alinea Group of Restaurants, which includes Alinea, Next, the Aviary, Royster, I think I'm getting that right, and the Aviary, New York City. NYC, that is. He's also the founder and CEO of Talk Inc., a reservations and CRM system for restaurants with more than two and a half million diners and clients in more than 20 countries. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, restaurants, food, that's not my thing. Doesn't matter. We're going to get into philosophy. We're going to get into derivatives trading. We're going to get into books like Fooled by Randomness, The Problems of Philosophy, Uh, let's see, peregrinations of an Epicurean and how Nick seems to break every industry or type of business he goes into in the most productive way possible. It's a really fun conversation. But back to the bio. Alinea A-L-I-N-E-A, which, by the way, I based basically an entire section of The 4-Hour Chef on, which was one of my books, because I was so impressed. Alinea has been named the best restaurant in America and best restaurant in the world by organizations and lists as diverse as the James Beard Foundation. They give James Beard awards out, which are kind of like the Oscars in the food world. World's 50 Best, TripAdvisor, Yelp, Gourmet Magazine, and Elite Traveler. His restaurants have won nearly every accolade afforded to them, despite the fact that uh, he does not, or didn't at least, have any experience whatsoever in restaurants. And he had some amazing, amazing partners we get into. But that set of beginner's eyes is really, really crucial. And we dig into how he cultivates that a lot. Nick has been, uh, (laughs) he uses this word, a subversive entrepreneur, which I agree with, and angel investor since 1996. He spent a decade as a very successful derivatives trader, has co-written three books, and believes in radical transparency in markets and business. His latest effort is The Aviary Cocktail Book, which is perhaps the most gorgeous book I've ever seen. I got an early copy. It is stunning. It is just unbelievable what they've done. It is self-published, has already sold, that is pre-sold, nearly a million dollars in copies and is being released right now. Shipped right now in October of 2018. It it is truly, I think, the most beautiful book I have ever seen and held in my hands. So you can find out all about it. You can see all sorts of photos and samples at theaviarybook.com. That's www.theaviarybook.com, A-V-I-A-R-Y. Check it out. So I'll leave it at that. Please listen to this episode, even if you have no interest in food, it doesn't matter. We span so many different businesses, industries, life lessons. Uh, I had a blast with this, and I hope you do as well. Here to Nick Kukonis.
1: Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Awesome to be here, finally. Yeah,
0: Yeah, we have the benefit of having spent some time together, and I've been fed a lot of caffeine by you. And uh you're also of great help with the four hour chef. So I wanted to right off the bat, thank you for that.
1: It was a really lovely experience. It was kind of a fun um thing because I remember when you you sent me like a preview of the book and then you called me to say like, hey, you know, do you want to say anything about it? And I was like on a chairlift and I was like, by the time I get off this chairlift, I will have a blurb for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, There's such pressure. Uh,
0: we, well, which, which meant a lot. And pressure, I think is the word to describe uh, so much about you and your life I want to say trajectory, but I'm not even sure that is the right word. And I thought a fun way to kick off the conversation would be to share with people listening some of the back and forth that we had when we were brainstorming what a podcast might look like, because certainly I, I don't think of you first and foremost as a food guy per se. And we were, we were having this exchange via text, and then via email. And I thought I'd just read one of your responses as we were swapping different ideas. And uh, I'll probably edit for space a little bit here, but not by much. And here we go. I'm a huge believer in radical transparency in business. I give numbers and burn bridges with big companies because I think that a lot of times people don't ask the basic questions in publishing. For instance, how much did that book cost to print? How many did it sell? Oddly, those numbers are very hard to come by. I dug from uh, months, years ago to do the Alinea book the right way. For bars, why does a bartender wash dishes and talk to customers? We've redesigned the bar experience in one best bar in the world. For restaurants, why is it the only form of entertainment that has only a mutual promise to show up? And then it goes into behavioral economics. And in parentheses, I don't even know how to pronounce this last name correctly. Richard Thaler, or is it Taylor? Yeah, Thaler.
1: Thaler, Thaler yeah. is a
0: friend and investor, just won the Nobel Prize. Investing, been beating the market for nearly 30 years. Everything, in all caps, is about asymmetric risk-taking and information. And yet people people's perception of risk or of what I do is that it's risky. It is not. And uh, in a separate exchange, when we were talking about uh, many of the topics that you could talk about, outside of, say, restaurants, bars, and so on, even though that's been a big part of your life in recent history, many of these different experiments, explorations, portions of your career, topics that you could talk about, and then going into what you said, they come down to a single thought, really. Wherever there is opaque information that should be obvious, run to that gap. So I struggle with where to even begin with the 20 (laughs) the 20 options that we have here but maybe you maybe you could maybe you could explain to me how behavioral economics and richard thaler fit into this uh just just for for curiosity's sake
1: Uh, yeah i mean well I'll, i'll go back to the word you used options because i started out um back in 1992 or three studying options uh, trading derivatives trading and I think there's a huge misconception about what that is because of movies because of the big short because of you know Wall Street all that um, It's a bit like playing a game of chess for a living or being the house at a casino that sort of thing It's about taking you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of decisions per day and pretending it's like a big decision tree. And any given decision is, is probably got, you know, if you're really good, 48% chance of being wrong. So you have to be, you have to be really, really good at constantly being comfortable being wrong, Mm -hmm. but knowing that your overall number of, of decisions that you're going to be right more than you're wrong. And so like, I know there's like a big theme, a lot of the folks that you have on, like they talk about success or failure or how to measure those things. And I kind of don't look at it as success or failure with anything. I look at it as just like, is my pattern of decisions correct? Um, And then getting back to your actual question with Professor Thaler and behavioral economics, and I mean, essentially, what they're looking at is, is decision making, what drives people to make Certain decisions, what's rational about those decisions, what is mostly irrational or emotional, or what decisions do we make that people don't even realize they're they're making a decision, which is often the case as well and then if you think about it, every single form of what we do art commerce, science, you know um, picking a mate like all those things um, comes down to a whole bunch of decisions that you make without often really thinking about the decision itself. Um, not that you can go around walking around going, wow, I've just made another decision. But when you are doing, you know, business or, or starting a company or publishing a book or whatever it may be, you can be intentional about that and realize that it's going to be an iterative process. And so I think that's, that's been not only the case for me in, in learning, um, how to filter things through that mindset, but like when you said there isn't really a trajectory, like I kind of look at everything I've done as, as the same in a way, mm-hmm. even though other people look at it and go like, wow, you went from being a derivatives trader to owning restaurants. Like that's weird. And I studied philosophy in college. So like people are like, how do you go from philosophy to finance? You know, and to me it was all the same thing.
0: How is that, that particular transition or rather uh, progression, I suppose, from philosophy to finance is one that you and I haven't really talked about, and that that one is interesting to. I, I'd love to explore for a second, and we're going to go into a million different nooks and crannies. Yeah, through. yeah, yeah. But did, was did do you feel like philosophy was studying philosophy undergrad was an asset that then later helped you, or was it just an interest you explored en route to other things?
1: No, I I, I can't remotely imagine having not. Not done that, and the way that actually I did it was really interesting. I, I had no intention of when I got to college. I thought I'd study political science, economics, pre-law kind of thing, something like that. And um, my very like second week at Colgate University, uh, wonderful professor who just passed away last year at 94 years old, really great mentor to me, um, Professor Jerome Balmuth, uh, was a tenured professor at Colgate for almost 60 years. Pulled me aside, um, introduction to logic, you know, 101, and basically said, "What do you?" what are you studying here? And uh, I I told him and he said, no, you're going to be a philosophy major. (laughs) I'm going to tell you, I'm going to teach you how to think. Um, And, and he would, he was the kind of guy like there's like, there's this great scene in a river runs through it where the, where the dad, you know, every time the kid writes an essay, like the young, uh, you know, fisherman kid writes an essay and he brings it to his father to be graded. He, he gives it back to him and says half as long again. (laughs) And that's like, Long before that movie ever came out, um, Professor Balmuth would, would essentially assign a paper to the class and say it should be about 15 pages. And people would be like, well, how long? And he'd always say, like, you know, how long is a piece of string? Like, it's however long it needs to be. And then he would tell me, yours can't be longer than three pages. <laughs> and And people would be, like, jealous. Like, wow, you only have to write three pages. If you take it seriously, that is a much, much harder thing to do. So he really trained me as well as a number of other professors there to – be clear in thinking succinct to to you know understand what logic was to process information and really to look for parallels in different fields and different fields of thought um, and so man like when I got out of school I, I went to law school for like a, a day and a half <laughs> and I'd gotten into I got into, into penn like a, a joint JD phd program at Penn and as soon as I kind of knew who the other folks were and what their their desires and trajectories were. I was like, oh, well, this isn't actually a good fit for me. And um, I remember my future father-in-law told my now wife, um, then girlfriend, that I was in danger of becoming an intellectual bum <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I dropped out of I dropped out of law school before I really entered law school. And um, you know, I floundered around for a little while. Um, but you know, if you grew up in Chicago, you end up meeting people who who had this unusual lifestyle, and that was back in the days pre pre-internet, pre, pre-electronic trading, um, pre-high-frequency trading, where there was literally people on a giant trading floor th- shouting at each other. And you either were attracted to the, I don't know, almost animalistic nature of that. Um, and for me, it was like a huge challenge, because there are people down there that were, had, you know, PhDs from MIT. And then there was People who were like you know butchers that went down there with hundred thousand dollars and just kicked ass, <laughs> and 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 so it was it wasn't about your your level of education or any of the stuff I already talked about. It was about can you show up every day and every day's game day and be really disciplined and very clear headed in in with chaos around you. How and, did you get introduced to that world? You know, if you grew up in Chicago, you know some of these guys. And some of them are flashy. And I can remember the exact moment. I'm not going to name a name here, as you'll find out uh, why in a second. But I, <laughs> I, I was walking down the street. I, had, I was like, you know, six months out of college, kind of didn't know what I was going to do. And I was walking down the street, and I bumped into a guy I knew in high school. And, you know, he wasn't um, the best student, he didn't try the hardest and I was like, Hey, what are you doing now? And he was like, well, I'm just rehabbing these homes. And I, I thought literally like, Oh, he's a construction worker. And I was like, you know, what are you doing with them? He's like, well, I just bought this block and <laughs> 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 I'm turning this all over. This is a true story. I mean, this is so not like, you know, a good reason to do something, but, but I looked at him and I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, I skipped college. And I, I started, I was a runner on the floor of the Merc. And now I, I you know, I own like 25 condos and three townhomes. And, and I, I trade and I kind of went like, wow, you know, I don't know what I knew a little bit about it. I'd been down on the floor before just visiting, but I was kind of like, that's fascinating. Like that is a truly fascinating thing. And, you know, I, I went down, visited the floor. I had to fake my resume in the wrong direction to get a job. <laughs> it's a true story. Um, like people lie on their resume all the time. I'm probably the only person that got rid of like, you know, my degree and my my like uh, academic awards and all that because, you know, to get a clerk job on the floor, the last thing they wanted was someone with a good degree, phi beta kappa, you know, magna cum laude, all that stuff. Um, so I faked my resume, got a $5 an hour job and looked for a mentor. And I, I found a guy named Frank Sereno who um, was at Chicago research and trading who' is, which also was founded by a philosophy major it's actually very common and um, why is that common I I, 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 I don't I, yeah. I wish I knew the answer I, I don't know the answer I, I do know that there's three or four of the largest trading firms in the world are run by philosophy majors um, and if you look back at my My class just of, of, you know, there's a few professors in there, but there are people who make movies. There's a guy who runs an ad agency, a large ad agency. Like it was, it's a really interesting path. It's not just like studying physics, you know, like I know some great physicists who, who are great in whatever they do. And I think it's, I think it's a similar discipline of abstract thought. Mm -hmm. Like I can't think of anything worse than studying business. (laughs) (laughs) it just seems like a terrible thing to study to me
0: is that that because it's like the surface of the waves in the ocean topically it's just so non-transferable in a sense and then as you go lower and lower to the slower moving layers that's just more multidisciplinary in terms of studying like the basics of how things work or how people think
1: yeah, I think it's it's almost like it's how to do something or how to manage something, but not why to do it. Right. And and so if if you're taught in 1992, if I went and got an MBA, I would have been taught a certain kind of management that six years later with the internet would have gotten blown up. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's like I always ask the why question. You know, um, when we're you know you were mentioning like the book publishing or or a bar, like. You know, I just looked at some things and I was like, why is that like, why does it work that way? <laughs> um, and oftentimes the people most entrenched in a system have no idea why they're like the third or fourth generation of person within that system. And they have no idea why a school bell rings in the morning, for example, or mm-hmm. why a bartender is washing the dishes. Um, and often, I don't know the real answer, um, but I come up with alternative ones, at least, that suit my narrative, I guess.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Undervalued skill, by the way, in some cases, right? you got to be careful, but uh, very, uh, a very, 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 very very interesting. I I, I want to pause here, partially because I'm over-caffeinated. I was inspired by my nostalgia related to your <laughs> double espressos. Uh, but why did the professor pull you aside, what did that early undergrad professor in Logic 101 see in you, whether he explained it or not later, I don't know, that led him to take a special interest in you?
1: Well, I, you know, I think I think I was prepared in earnest because I was mostly terrified. Um, you know, he had a reputation of being kind of like a, um, you know, uh, he was a Socratic method teacher. He was pretty harsh. Um, Colgate was very small classes and there was a class of, you know, 80 people and he kind of wanted to whittle it down to a more manageable number. And his method to do that was just to kick your ass. Um, <laughs> and I, and I, I remember, I mean, he, he probably as great as he was, he, I doubt he would survive starting out at a, college campus now i mean i've literally i literally saw him light fire to someone's notebook once when he was asking people like examples of how to put out a fire and this one guy was just stuttering because he was so in fear and so he just lit his notebook on fire and he (laughs) he stamped and the kid threw it on the ground stamped on he's like you could smother it sure and he called everyone he memorized every person's last name and it was mr and ms and um i remember the specific day um he was literally at you know back to the this is like right out of a movie. He is back to the class writing on a chalkboard, you know, some, some logic problems, symbolic logic. And, um, the guy next to me, um, uh, had no shot at getting it, right? None. Right. And so he, he said his name and, um, And I wrote on the paper on my desk so he could see it, like what, what the answer was. And then without missing a beat or turning around, he was like, Mr. Konis, please do not help him. There is no way in hell he could possibly have done that without your help. (laughs) And, and this is like two or three weeks in, right? And he spun around and he saw that I didn't have my book. And he said, Mr. Konis, where's your book? And I said, it's at my, it's in my dorm room, you know, professor. And he said, well, a lot of good. It's doing you there. I said, on the contrary, it must apparently be doing me a lot of good there. And he said, I'll see you after class. So I thought I was getting kicked out. <laughs> and there was like a line forming to create office hours or to like ask to be transferred out or whatever. And when I got to the front, he said, follow me. And I followed him to his office. And I, I swear, I mean, he's you know running through the fall, uh, New England fall. And, and I thought I was going to get kicked out of the class. And when I closed the door... I turned around. He has feet up on the desk, and he said, "Where are you from? What do you want to do here?" And that was it. Like he <laughs> he he took me under his wing. I was very fortunate. I um and you know it's like I never knew. Here's the amazing part: I never knew the guy liked me until ten years after I graduated, and then I was treated like a member of his family at his funeral thirty years later. Huh. Right. So, really fascinating uh, person. Really fascinating, uh, you know, uh, moment in my life where. Um, I don't know someone saw something in me and kind of went like I'm going to make an investment in this person and I never asked for anything back you know ever how did you not
0: know that he liked you did he withhold in some way so that you wouldn't get a big head or something along those
1: lines did I he not I want was, to get it
0: overly attached to you so he wouldn't no, express no, 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 it?
1: No. I I think I was 19 years old and I didn't know that the people you like you hold to a higher standard probably Right. Um, and so consequently, uh, you know, I, I like it was really like he beat the shit out of me in a good way. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he, right. he it's like if you have someone who's teaching you something and they invest their time in you and they think you have a chance of being good, they work you harder than the folks around you. So the people that I thought he liked, he was just being nice to because they didn't he didn't think they had a chance. Right. Yeah. yeah. he didn't care. He and, wasn't invested. Yeah, and and so with with me, I think it would be like – he would be talking to my English professor without me even knowing and being like, you know, that paper sucks. He can do a lot better than that. Give him a C on that one. Yeah. And I was just like – I was like, what's going on? Like all of a sudden that class got hard. I didn't know. <laughs> I, like I had no idea. Um, and uh, it was just – it was an interesting, uh, lucky, fortunate place to be at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. So we're going to get back to the mark, but before we do, philosophy, I'm endlessly fascinated by philosophy, but I'm also a nerd and kind of academic and pedantic and have spent a lot of time in school. For people who are listening to this who are, say, already in their careers or maybe they're in their early 20s thinking of starting a company but are entrepreneurially either involved or inclined, would you suggest if they don't have any exposure to philosophy that they read any particular books or resources or explore it in any way? Or would you say, actually, you know what, that was an intermediate step to something else. You, you would probably be better off studying X, Y, and Z. Is there like a starter kit or a something you would recommend to folks who don't have the philosophy exposure?
1: Yeah. You know, I think part of it is if you read a book in isolation, um, it's not as rich of an experience as discussing those ideas within that context. Um, that said, if it's if, if you're the kind of person that loves to read and explore ideas, I mean, there's hardly a better place. It's a matter of finding what you enjoy. Um, you know, I, I, I happen to love um, The Problems of Philosophy, which Bertrand Russell wrote, um, sort of about Wittgenstein's ideas, but before Wittgenstein published. Um, and it's it's written in plain language. It's not hard to understand. Um, certainly Nietzsche um, is more like philosophy with some weird sugar coating of something (laughs) on top of it. Um, And man, like as a young male, you know, reading Nietzsche for the first time, I was like, fuck yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, like, like, it's not like, it's not passive. Like, I think people think of philosophers as like Zen monks sitting there quietly contemplating the universe. Um, I think what it is, is it's people grappling with all the same questions and curiosity that that we all have if you pause to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so there it's, it's so big, you know, um, that it's, it's not just, you know, Descartes, you know, I think therefore I am, it's, it's, it's kind of every little bit of that. Um, back to like, you know, read Lucretius, like he had the atomic, Could you spell that? Universe. I'm going to be the first one to L- admit Lucretius? that. Lucretius? Oh, I can't. Oh, Lucretius, I, I, Lucretius. Yeah, yeah Lucretius. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, he,
0: L U C R I T I U S. Yeah, think. I'm a
1: terrible speller. Yeah. So if you never we'll, ask me to spell we'll, it, we'll put it in the show notes for Yeah, people. right, right. But like, you know, it's like you you read read that or read this great book called The Swerve, which, you know, is is uh, you know, about this this monk ages ago um, that that sort of found that book and then rewrote it and saved it for history like that reads like a murder mystery like you don't necessarily need to start with the philosophy you can start with the things around it Um, but I you know it's like I continue to find sort of the world of ideas endlessly inspirational and and then by the way you know steal them and use them in whatever you're doing like that they're there for you lucretius
0: l-u-c-r-e-t-i-u-s Titus Lucretius Carus was a Roman poet and philosopher. We'll put that in the show notes. The, the, I want to second Bertrand Russell also. I haven't read Bertrand Russell in so many ages, uh, but it is very digestible. It is not dressed up in $10 words when 10 cent words would suffice. Uh, a lot of his writing is, is really powerful. And I, I also just wanted to mention for folks, That, and I just thought about this ages and ages ago, I felt like I had certain gaps in my education uh, after college. And I ended up, I don't know why this didn't occur to me earlier, but somebody mentioned that Stanford, UC Berkeley, these top tier universities all had extended or adult education classes taught by professors and junior professors. I mean, these, this is the same team <laughs> who's teaching. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, those are
1: very readily accessible. Well, and even MIT open courseware, like yep. so many colleges now have taken that model and put great, great, great classes online. Um, and, you know, I know that every now and then I'm surprised what I, what I find on there and get sucked into like an all nighter of, of, Taking some college class, you know, that I know nothing about, and it's so far over my head. But it, it kind of refuels you again to go like, oh, like there are huge gaps where I know nothing. And the older you get, the harder it is to to start into something new. I find at least um, because it feels like the mountain's too big, you know. I would, I would actually uh,
0: not not to pull a Nick. Actually, sir, on the the contrary, on the contrary, (laughs) sir, my book is doing me a lot of good in my dorm room. That's right. I think one of your superpowers is that you ask the fundamental why questions about longstanding assumptions or uh, conventional wisdom in different fields. And the more you have done that, the more obvious it is to you to do it as a starting point. Uh, in in a way. So, so it, let, let's go back to the Merc. Um, we we can go in any direction, of course. But yeah, yeah. You you get you step into this Lord of the Flies slash gladiatorial arena with butchers and PhDs and so on. Then what? Like at what point is there a point when you're like, okay, I actually do think I could be good at this.
1: No. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, I, I, for real, no. Um, I, I was down there and I, I, I had made um, a fatal error of leaving school. <laughs> and, and everyone told me it was a fatal error. And, um, this is leaving, you know, uh, the law it, school. Yeah. And, and I, I, I remember being down there and, you know, what I was doing was so brainless. It was literally you take this piece of paper over to that guy, and then that guy would yell at you and you would rip the paper out of your hand and then you'd go get another one. It was literally that brain dead. <laughs> and I was desperately looking to learn what was going on around me. Um, and of course I, I bought books on finance and commodities and options and all that. And they were completely ridiculous and opaque and academic that and they looked like they had no relationship to what was going on there at all. Um, I started taking classes that were run at the Merck on mock trading and just learning the hand signals and things like that, which were fine but didn't really teach you how to trade. And I spent, you know, time interviewing with big companies like Goldman Sachs and Societe Generale and whatnot because I did have the academic background where I would get the interview, I would be able to take the test, I would do well on their math and psychology tests, I would get offered a job as as a trader. Uh, And then I would look at the contract. Um, This is a key thing. People get out of college, they get offered a job. I, I think I'm the only one who ever read the employment contract. And what it said in there was basically like they could do anything they want with me for three years. Like I don't even necessarily need to be a trader. Like I, that's what I was interested in doing, but they could, they could ship me to France and have me do something totally different. I could be an analyst or, you know, God knows what. And so when I would question that, they'd be like, man, you should be really happy. Like we had, you know, 300 applicants for this and we offered eight positions, like just take it. And I was kind of like, <laughs> totally your style. <laughs> I, no, and I, was, I was just kind of like, you know, I, I grew up, you know, like I, I'd be remiss not to say that like my dad modeled, um, my dad was an entrepreneur by necessity because his dad died when he was really young. He fought both at the end of world war two, he was drafted into the Navy at the end of world war two was dismissed honorably after 16, 18 months because they were downsizing the Navy. And then he was barely young enough, um, to be drafted into the army for the Korean war. And when he got out, like, he, you know, he had no usable skills. So he went to work at the grocery store that he started working at when he was 12 years old, saved up all of his money, um, from the army and the Navy and, and bought the store. And so as I was growing up, uh, you know, my hero was my dad, who was not an academic, who was not um, what people would think of as like an executive in a suit or whatever, but did really well. Um, you know, he had uh, a, a bought um, property and real estate. He, he owned a temporary labor office that supplied unskilled laborers to factories and, and, and conventions and whatnot. Um, that was a really good business, you know, and he had a lot of common sense smarts. Um, he was horrified that I didn't go to law school, you know, but meanwhile, I was modeling what he did. And so when I got down there, I was like, you got to own, you have to own your own situation, you know? Um, and so when I was offered those jobs, I was like, well, I don't really see myself working for someone else, you know? And I found a guy, um, who also felt that way and he was working for a big company and they didn't want to make him a trader because he was too much of a quant like he was really well educated he was really mathematical he wanted to prove them wrong so he took a small amount of money and started trading um, currency options and when I found him I instantly knew that this was the right person because I talked to dozens of people and no one was like him Um, and then he said he didn't want to hire me like you didn't want to hire anyone. <laughs> how did you yeah. meet him? Do you remember how you guys met? Yeah, I was, I was just introduced to him um, through – he was – back then there were – you know, it's, if you're a trader um, or even a trading company you have a clearing firm like Goldman Sachs, um, at the time there was a company called First Options um, and he cleared First Options. And back then you would literally have to take the elevator up to key punch in all of the cards into like a computer that was, you know, up on 17 floors away, um, you know, wow. ancient times. And uh, I, w- I met him through uh, being introduced to him there. Uh, after talking to him, I knew he was a sort of geeky intellectual that I, that I needed. Um, and then when he told me like, that he didn't want to hire me because he just hired some clerk, I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I will pay you to work for you. And, and he, was, he was like, this is really strange, you know. And I, I explained to him what I just said. It's like, look, I've been here six months. I set a goal for myself of, of getting, you know, becoming like getting on a badge, it was called like leasing a seat and actually trading within a year. And I was like, I need to get going on this. Like I need someone that's going to teach me options. And, um, it's fascinating because, you know, he, he then hired me for, I mean, I want to say it was $400 a week or something like that. And, uh, you know, I stood right next to him all day, every day. And he taught me options theory from scratch better than any college ever could, um, to the point where you're looking, you know, three derivatives in, um, you know, the, it's not just volatility curve, but the curve of the curve. And, um, you know, as soon as I started grasping this and going deeper, deeper down that rabbit hole, the more, the more I liked it as, as a puzzle. It wasn't certainly the money had an appeal, but it was also, Hey, here's this, this giant competition It's like playing a huge multifaceted chess game that no one's going to get exactly right. But like I said earlier, it's about making hundreds of decisions a day. And even when you get 10 in a row that come up tails, you know that the next one's 50-50, you know. And uh, that discipline was interesting. Um, that was more about teaching yourself the psychology of standing there while everyone told you, you were wrong or you were like physically small or you were too educated or too serious. I mean, you can't imagine how much of a fraternity house that place was. I everything in Wolf of Wall Street I have seen. <laughs> I haven't lived, but I've yeah. seen it all. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I started hiring very shortly after I started trading and about a year later I left and started my own company with almost nothing. And I hired my first employee, um, who became my business partner for the last 25 years. And I taught him what I, what I learned. And I, I, I hired people that I considered corporate refugees, um, people who worked for companies and decided that independence was better. Why did you leave after a year? Um, you know, he, he was moving over to the Chicago board of trade and I had, uh, found a couple of awesome programmers um, to help build this options analysis software. And he sort of offered me up um, to run like some of the operations at the Mercantile Exchange when he went over to trade um, the bonds at the Board of Trade. And, you know, I mean, he was a really, really smart guy. And he he made me a deal that when you analyzed it very carefully, it got worse over time. <laughs> and I just kind of went, you know, I like it's been great. And I've learned a ton, and we've made each other a bunch of money, and it's a win-win. But I really wanted to do my own thing. Like, I wanted to be the captain of my own ship, I guess. And uh, thankfully, this guy, Jim Hansen, who's still one of my dearest friends, um, sort of had an option to to stay, you know, um, with that company or come at a completely underfunded company. (laughs) I mean, thinking back, it was so stupid, you know, um, from a risk perspective. But um, it was asymmetric. You know, um far more upside than downside. And uh it worked out really well and, and we spent most of our time as we hired people and, and taught them um how to do this, it was mostly like psychology training. It was mostly standing around after hours and saying, What's seven times twenty eight? and screaming it at each other like a drill sergeant until the person couldn't remember what nine times three was anymore. And <laughs> wait, why did you do that? <laughs> well, you had to be quick. You had to be quick on basic mental agility. I see. So if you bought, if you bought 450 contracts and it was a 20 Delta, you needed to be able to do what's well, 20% of four hundred and fifty. it's 90, but you need to do that pr- precisely with numbers that are not so round. Right. Uh, you need to be willing to not be perfect and you need to make that decision instantaneously um, and realizing that it could cost you 50 to a hundred thousand dollars if you get it right or wrong. And you and you have to be really really comfortable with that. Um, and so, what did we do? Well, we stood around and we beat, we turned people's brains into mush until like I had people punch me, cry, run out. It was um, it, it was no. I mean, it sounds awful, but it was it's amazing training because the rest of the world moves much slower. Yeah. So any other decisions that that I've made in business since then um, have felt glacial in pace. Yeah. Um, there's, there's
0: also something to be said for making the trainer, the training in some or all respects harder than the competition, right? I mean, the adage of the more you sweat during peacetime, the less you bleed during wartime. I mean, the, the best competitors I've met in many, many fields often strive to make their training and the toil of their preparation harder than what they expect to face when they yeah, actually... it's why we it's
1: why we love watching big time sports. Like yeah. when it when it matters, there are certain people that you know are are you can almost look at them and go, oh, that poor that poor person's gonna fade. And then you you hope they don't, right? You hope all that training, you know, pays off. Um when you see someone I, I love golf for all the same reasons. It's like you know just a, a series of constant failures. <laughs> and then so um when you look at someone who who can pull that that rabbit out of the hat, you know, at the exactly the right moment. Um, it's it's pretty, pretty wonderful to see. And and I the thing I loved about my time down there, even though I burned out of it after 10 years, is that I uh, there were moments where I, I did. Absolutely. I mean, I have friends. They'll listen to this and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember that time. In the And Pit, you really got this right. You know, um, but I, I made some completely stupid decisions. Um, but, but mostly on, on the measure, um, when things got crazy, I was able to perform, um, more than not. I remember like Greenspan's irrational exuberance speech was like a formative moment where I kind of went like, wow, I can actually, I, I, I can not only hang in this environment, I can thrive in it. And, you know, you get home soaking wet with sweat. It was a physical job, I guess, with people, it was really blue collar in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, it's like I got home that day and I was like, that was that was what I prepped my last six years for. It was very satisfying. It, it sounds like an awful it is an awful thing in a way. Right. Like it's, it's just about pure commerce. Um, it, it, it serves, you know, a, a purpose of price discovery and, and all of that. But any individual person isn't really the one doing that, you know. So I, I think that there are negatives to the whole system as well in hindsight. But man, at the time, it just felt like great mental training.
0: What would you recommend to people who are listening and are having this flashback to the introductory text exchange about beating the market over a long period of time who are hoping to become better investors? And you can take that anywhere you want, but are there any particular... Tools, it's books, really, mental models, yeah, any, anything that you would
1: recommend? It's really, really hard. Um, I think the mental model is asymmetric risk. I always look for something that the the upside is, you know, three to four X, the downside. Um, obviously, quantifying those is very difficult, um, but that's that's the key. Everything I try to do is asymmetric. Um, and then even though um, Nassim Taleb is a bit of a pedantic goofball on Twitter – um his book Fooled by Randomness is awesome. Yeah. Um that was the one that preceded Black Swan. And um I think Black Swan's great, it's fine. But um Fooled by Randomness is is I think the better of, of all his books because it it just, man, it just encapsulates everything that people price things incorrectly. It's, a, I mean, it's all you have to do is a walk a through a book. casino. Yeah. yeah, you walk through a casino and you see everybody pricing their outcomes incorrectly. <laughs> the entire city is built on that. And um you know, if you could get in your head, <laughs> literally, 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 yeah, literally, and and I I don't take any pleasure like people are like oh you must you must love gambling or whatever, and it's like I would never sit down to a blackjack table because I know that you know there's a forty nine and a half percent chance that I'm going to win, and that's the wrong way. <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The, the fuller randomness is, is, uh, has come up a number of times. I haven't read it in ages because it is one of his earlier books, but, uh, you know, Howard Marks also brought this up recently when I was chatting with him and, uh, it, it is an exceptional book, I think for developing a new lens on life, not just investing. When you are investing for yourself now, how do you think about how do you think about risk because this is a word that has popped up a few times uh but a lot of uh how do you pers- how do you personally think about risk in your life do you for instance like some startup founders look at the risk as the various early stage startups restaurants bars and so on that you're involved with and then you play it safe in your other kind of asset allocation how do you think about risk in in your life or in investing?
1: Yeah, that's that's a pretty difficult question. I, I, I think that yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that um, if you look at everything that I've I've done business wise, everybody would say that the failure rate is super high in what we do. So trading, they used to say one out of a hundred people that goes down there breaks even their first year, and fewer out of out of that one take another hundred of those ones and less than one in a hundred of those becomes a millionaire. And I went, great. (laughs) It's like the old Jim Carrey. So you're saying there's chance, you know, (laughs) right. right. right, You know, and, 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 and and then, uh, and then you go to, uh, to the restaurant business and people, Oh yeah, 95% of all restaurants go out of business in their first two years. And I'm like going great. You know, that's, that's perfect. Um, why do you, why do you have that response? Is well, it because so you, I'm yeah. Gonna, yeah? So I, and then I'm going to start. I'm doing a yeah. know, software startup now. Too. Yeah, go for it. So so, the higher the smaller the hoop, um, the more interesting it is to figure it out. Um, and once you're up there and you know how to jump up through that little hoop, um, there's there's fewer people playing that game, you know, and and the other thing is, I remember right when I was going to start building Alinia with with grant i i was talking to a restaurant owner and by all accounts he was pretty successful he had four or five restaurants and one of them i really liked a lot and we'd go there a lot and i kind of got to know him a little bit and he said so you know what are you up to and i said well actually i'm building a restaurant now and he looked at me and said ah oh, it's a terrible business you don't want to do it like incredible failure rate terrible and i was like why did you build the next four? how do you respond to that you know no one does that's kind of like what you know we'll get to it i'm sure but that's like the way i was with the publishing thing it's like it's like hey man people keep printing books and yet i can't figure out any of the information and yet they're going to give me like three or four hundred thousand dollars to write a book like something's remiss here like you know (laughs) what i mean i've never written a book before but yet someone's gonna write me a four hundred thousand dollar check there must be a lot of money on the other side of that bet and um and so consequently like i always try to look for the high small hoops and then i spend my time learning as much as i can and then i jump through that hoop uh it's both more interesting i think and i also think getting back to the asymmetry of risk um those are the ones that you know yeah you might have a you know well, first of all, do you really have a 95% failure rate if you put in all that effort? Yeah. I, I don't think so, you yeah. know. Um, and second of all, you know, so I think they priced it wrong, so to speak. Um, and then second of all, like, man, that's, that's where the fun is. Like, that, that gets you up in the morning and, and going to work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is where, uh, in, among many, many other places, averages can be very, very misleading. Right, and uh, I, I always end up in public Q and As uh, and things of this type, hearing various n- numbers and stats thrown around, uh, many of which I ha- think have no basis on any data whatsoever. But there's the we only use ten percent of our brands, not true. There is the nine out of ten startups fail within the first year, or whatever the s- yeah, stat yeah. the stat is, and the The first question that occurs to me with uh, a number like the uh, the latter or I guess a ratio is well is it because the model is difficult? is it because startups are inherently that high risk or is it is are there other plausible explanations is it that 9 out of 10 people who attempt to start a startup don't do
1: any of the necessary due diligence correct yes <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean and the then, number of yeah. the number of i you know i've been on a couple of uh like graduate school you know entrepreneurship um like you know contests and whatnot and one of the things that always happens there is what i call like the time machine someone comes up with a business plan that is like you know You know, I'm going to build a time machine. Now, of course, it's not really a time machine, but I have seen ones that defy the laws of physics, for example, Um, or, you know, new pipeline technology, but they have no idea. Like, it's just a pipe dream. They've done none of the engineering, you know. Um, So you kind of look at that and you go, you know, you haven't really done the homework yet at all. Um, And then there's a lot of people that come to me and they've spent like six months doing their logo <laughs> and, the, and the name of the company, but they don't actually have a piece of software yet. Right. Well, I'm just going to hire someone to, to build that for me or an app. Uh, you know, I get so many apps pitched to me. And, you know, they don't know how to build an app, but they've got a logo and an idea. And I was like, that's a good way to blow a half million dollars on a consultant. <laughs> oh man i, I we're you gonna, must get all the, you must get that
0: fifty times worse than yeah, i yeah so. I mean what what I tend to get, and this is part of the reason why I stopped all the startup stuff uh a couple of years ago is it got to the point where ninety percent of the pitches I received, which were unsolicited, would be along the lines of <clears throat> Uh, hi, comma, like not even a first name, uh, or be like, hi, Tim, or hey, Tim, even better. Uh, I am the CEO or co-founder of X. Uh, we are raising this at this valuation. We are oversubscribed, but we could squeeze you in for 25k if you're really interested because we admire ABC. Here the docs attached.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. Like, let us
0: know if you're interested in the next 60 minutes, (laughs) which might end up. My default response to anything like that, where people are pressuring me for a fast decision, is no. Like, it's just, (laughs) yeah, correct. uh, It's like I've I've lost very little money uh, saying no to those things. Uh, But the the coming back to the the examples that you were giving and what we were talking about, uh, bridging over to restaurants and food. Um, so you're, you're being told how restaurants are an awful business. Food is an awful business. And I remember someone told me long, long time ago, they're like, yeah, if you want to lose money, go into magazines or restaurants, right? And at what point, and I, I, have a little bit of the backstory, but not all the details. Like at what point do you decide to go into or get involved with restaurants and why,
1: Well, so I, I left trading in about 2002, um, 2001, uh, it was a, you know, tough year between nine 11, um, which was my father died in February of that year. Um, I was burnt out after, you know, going really hard for so long and, um, you know, we'd built up a pretty good sized company too. And I merged with a firm in New York and I just, I kind of needed a break, but didn't know how to, how to really take one at the time. Um, and so I left, I left trading and i immediately kind of panicked because here's something that i i really genuinely enjoyed um but didn't didn't kind of know what i wanted to do next and started doing um consulting for you know a small hedge fund and and then you know i, I just didn't know what to do and I, I had you know an awesome wife and a young son and, and things were good you know but i i i was kind of panicked i was i was playing golf with like you know, ex-athletes, because who else is 34 years old and can play golf on a Wednesday afternoon? Um, <laughs> and so it was just a weird thing. And I kind of looked at them, and I'm like, oh, they don't really seem all that happy, even though they're, they've got this lifestyle. And so um, I met Grant Ackitts, um, the chef, uh, at while dining at Trio. Um, went to uh, a lunch there one afternoon that some friends set up. And it was a transformative Experience. It was artistic. It was intellectual. It was thought provoking. Most of all, it was emotional. And those are all things that I would never have associated with eating a dinner. Right. Um, and so from from a perspective of like great art experiences, like seeing a great movie or a great play or going to an amazing museum uh, opening, um, we kept get drawing back there. Like, we kept going back, and we would go back so frequently that it was absurd because, you know, it was a big meal and it wasn't cheap. And every time we'd go somewhere else, we'd go like, wow, why, are, why is no one else thinking this way? And as I got to know Grant a little bit, I think, like, sometimes people bring, um, you know, the chef some wine or beer or whatever, and it's like, that's kind of sand to the beach, you know? Um, I would – I would bring him books and I didn't figure he had a lot of time to read. So I would put like a post-it note on a page of an old book. So I remember I I brought him this book called the peregrinations of an epicure. Hold Um, hold on a second. The peregrinations,
0: like a peregrine falcon. I don't even know what that is. No, no, (laughs) no. A peregrination is like a
1: wondering about. Uh, Okay. So it was written just after world war two, um, by an ex serviceman. Um, and he, he kind of goes around, Um, you know, Paris, I want to say maybe late 40s, early 50s. I can't recall exactly. And uh, there is um, a chapter in there on La Pyramide, which was a very classical restaurant, kind of the best in the world at the time. And he described a a meal there in emotional terms that resonated with what Grant was doing, even though his technique, his cuisine, everything was completely different. And so I literally just highlight like a couple lines in there and, and give him this book, which was out of print at the time. And, um, we kind of developed this email relationship back and forth where he would sort of try out some new food on us. And, um, I would give, you know, direct, honest feedback, but not like, Oh, it was delicious. It was more,
0: like,
1: <laughs> it was more like, you know, like, you're going for a provocation there, but if you, you know, and we would go back and forth, and he wrote uh, at the time on a on a forum called Egullet, uh, and I went on there and his spelling and grammar notwithstanding, with, I mean it was like reading someone who's just really thinking hard about what they were doing, everything we just talked about. here was this young twenty eight year old chef from Michigan who looked like Captain America who would come out not you know he was like hollywood in the sense of like he was good looking and very driven very clean cut but he didn't look like you know the stereotype central casting of a chef right you know mm-hmm. chubby gregarious guy he was really quiet introspective shy but then you'd read and you know these which are still up you know you can still google it and you'd go like you know he'd go on for like four pages about bread service <laughs> like what's the point of bread you know and this is a guy that I could wrap my you know wrap my head around and so um, I remember on, on January 20th, um, 2004, uh, it was my, my wife's birthday, and uh, she said, yeah, I, I want to go back there. And we'd never been in the kitchen before, and they have a table there, but we, we'd never eaten in there. And um, I remember I emailed him and said, she's ethnically Latvian, speaks Japanese, and loves Thai food. Good fucking luck. <laughs> And I knew exactly what that would do to him. That would put him into 10 days (laughs) of pure hell because he would research (laughs) Latvian food. He would have to redo – like he would redo a whole menu, 20 courses, right? And I didn't know they were going to put us in the kitchen. And um, they put us in the kitchen. I mean it sounds like a a jerky thing to do now, but we we did have a relationship a little bit at the time. And he served us like – the most amazing meal of my life, you know? Um, and it started out with Latvian sorrel soup with braised ham hocks and, you know, it had flavors of the sea, which was a Japanese dish. It had, it had Thai dishes, but it was all in his style. And so it was his own. And yet it had elements of all these things. And at the end of that meal, um, he said to me, you know, well, what do you think? And I had watched the kitchen and it was like a watchmaker shop. It was not screaming and yelling.
0: It is, it is just as, uh, sorry to interrupt. It is so unlike anything that the vast majority of people listening to this would possibly expect, right? Yeah, have, it's, have, not have, Ramsey. it's not Gordon Ramsay. It's not Gordon Ramsay, right? Yeah, it is just complete silence. It is like a watchmaking factory. It is, uh,
1: it is really something else. Anyway, sorry started to, to jump in. Yeah, but. no, no, no. It's, it's, that's, that's totally fine. And so at the end I said, you know, I doubt anybody anywhere in the world had a better meal tonight. And he was like, well, well, thank you. And I said, what are you planning on doing with yourself? You know, I mean, I, I was like kind of, I had a lot of wine and I kind of, looked, <laughs> I kind of looked at him, you know, he sat down with us and I said, what are you, what are you going to do? And he goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you're not going to be here forever. And he said, well, I, I, I want to build my own restaurant. And I said, I'd be, I'd be happy to help you do that. And he said, well, what kind of restaurant do you want to build? I said, I don't know. I've never built a restaurant before. That was it. And then like a week later, I got an email with his business plan. I invited him by my house. And a year to the day later of that, that was May 4th, um, you know, I, we went back and forth on email. On May 4th, um, we held a, a dinner at my house for potential investors. And on May 4th, 2005, we opened Alinea. Um, that yeah. is nuts in terms Completely of nuts. We didn't know each other that, I mean,
0: can you put that in perspective for people? I actually did not realize that was the, the time frame. Yeah. I, I mean, can you just in the context of like
1: normal restaurant world, I mean, we, we, we argued like, so we didn't really know each other very well. But he would come by my house and he, and he didn't like, let me, let
0: me, let me interject for a second because you've, you've said we didn't know each other very well. What did you know about each other? Nonetheless, that gave you guys the, like the, the push, (sighs) like the impulse and the, the sufficient level of trust slash excitement to actually pursue it, right? There had to be something there. It couldn't just be nothing, so what was it? You didn't know each other well. I mean,
1: you, maybe you didn't know the full Look, scope I, of each other's I, backgrounds. I thought, yeah, I, I mean, I actually studied that. Like, that I actually knew. I knew the facts, you know. Um, and I knew what he was putting in front of me. Um, but I didn't know him, you know, like the way you know someone that you're going to become a business partner with. Um, and I think he just thought I was rich. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm I, I, being serious. Like, I yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like you know, it's, I think uh, everyone yeah. else wanted this is this is really true because he has said this to me. Um, everyone else wanted to offer him a a restaurant that they had already built or wanted to build. And I actually answered that question correctly. The I don't know is an awesome thing to say, like 90 percent of the time of your life. Right. And so. When he said, "What kind of restaurant do you want to build?" I could have waxed on about some dream I had or just made some bullshit up at the time, but I just said, "Like I have no idea. Like we got, that's a big question. We need to sort that out." Um, and I think that was the right answer for him. I think that's all he needed to know was, "Like, okay, the guy's got an open mind. He seems to have done well in business. He knows, like, you know, apparently how to build something." What was really funny is that the stuff that I was concerned about, which was like architecture, design, plumbing you know building lease all of that he was like the word oblivious is not too strong of a word (laughs) um like you know i mean this is not a criticism of him either right it's just like he came to my house and he was just like yeah i you know i want martin to design everything martin kastner who is a genius designer has crucial detail which we've been involved with for 15 years now um he's a like a designer, he's like a, uh, an artisan, like he built plateware and, and he won the Bocuse d'Or for the platter he designed for Thomas Keller and Daniel Beloud's team for the team USA and all that now. But back then, like, I mean, this guy's not going to design plumbing or electrical. So I would just look at him going like, well, no, he can't, we need an architect and you need to get you know, like city stamps and all that and all that. So, um, I think Grant was just like, yeah, you find a place, you put tables in it and you, you know, build a kitchen and you go. Um, you know, in terms of like, obviously he knew there were health inspectors and all that, but the process of all this just about, you know, you either were going to not build it ever eight weeks in because we would have hated each other or we were the kind of people that figured everything out and we just talked it out, like right down to like what kind of tables, what kind of glassware, what kind of this, like. You know, we wanted to rethink the why again of everything. Like, why do you put a, a candle on a table? Why is a candle romantic? Like, that's a question we asked. Why do we need candles? That's kind of like, why is that romantic? Why is, um, why do people put a little bud vase on a table? Why shouldn't that be an edible thing? That'd be cool. So, so we did all of that and we designed the experience to create emotional responses from the moment that you walked in the front door. So we didn't have the podium. Um, you know, we went, what is a good greeting feel like? Not just, you know, if you're at someone's house, what does that feel like? If you're at a restaurant, what shouldn't it feel like? Well, it shouldn't feel like a computer in front of your face saying, what's your name, you know, and all that. So we, we went through every aspect of that and, you know, I lost almost twenty pounds that year, not in a healthy way. Um, just like GCing the construction, I laid tile in the basement like three days before we opened. <laughs> let like, me let me pause for I one mean, second. Here's... So, the why
0: question that comes to mind for me is: after the finance, after uh, battling it out on the front lines and going through two thousand one, why this as your next thing? Like why? Why was this the thing that captured your imagination? Because you had to know on some level once you started getting into the details. Like, f- fuck! I mean, this is going to be <laughs> yeah, it's all in. This yeah, is going to be a right, big. Yeah. This is going to be all my chips in, yeah. in, energetically. So why? Why this?
1: You know, there there are occasional times when you wake up in the morning and like that thought comes back to you that that like, hey, I'm um, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm really sucked into this. Right. You know, and for about three or four months without telling anybody, even, you know, Dagmara, like even not telling her, like telling no one, I kept going, like, I should build a restaurant with this guy. (laughs)
0: Like,
1: like it would be the best restaurant in the world if it was done all the way. Right. And I recognized my inner voice saying that's a really dumb idea, (laughs) you know, and you don't know what you're doing. I'd never worked a day in my life in a restaurant right and 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 i also recognized and this is also critical i recognized that so many people built their living room after they made some money so they went like oh well i know how to host a good dinner party (laughs) and i know good wine so i'm gonna build me a restaurant and then they sit there (laughs) like it's their living room and that's not good like i didn't want to be that that ducy guy that built the restaurant um, because my ego was, was needed to host a party. Um, and so whenever I would kind of later on broach that subject and people would say like, well, you know, I could almost hear their brain whispering. Well, of course that's what he's going to (laughs) do. And, and, and so that was, again, not the best of motivations in the world, perhaps, but the honest one that was hugely motivating, um, eventually. But when we first started, It was this nagging thing like I'd wake up in the morning and I would go, you know, I'm not really into what I'm doing right now. And I've just met somebody who's the best in the world at what they do. And no one knows it yet. Like, and, and, you know, that's probably happened to me. I'm really fortunate that that's probably happened to me seven or eight times in my life. And when it happens and I meet that person, whoever it may be, no matter what they're doing, I, I, I pause. I kind of acknowledge that directly. And then I just go like, you know, can we, can we, you know, grab a glass of wine or or coffee or something? And like, that's something worth marking and going like, wow, this person's really invested in something. And Grant had every aspect of being, being that at 28 years old. And, and it, you know, I mean, in hindsight, like it looks It looks smart, but I gotta tell you, it was years before it felt smart. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned just
0: now that you've met these people seven or eight times who are the best in the world, uh, or potentially the best in the world. Or among them, yeah. Yeah, among, among them. But the, 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 the key point that jumps out for me is, and the world didn't know it yet. So my question for you is, that that sort of brings to the forefront in my mind, at least, the the question of what is Nick seeing or feeling that other people are not. Is, could you talk to that? I mean, when, like, is there a feeling or a particular type of observation, a particular type of detail that you notice in these people that allows you to scout the talent where other people might miss it or not pay enough attention to it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you've written a couple of books about, about, <laughs> about that. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely intangible. Um, you know, it's, I think it's different in every case. Um, but it's, it's interesting because you can tell when someone is fully committed, I guess, to their craft or their art or their business or whatever it is that they're doing, their sport. Um, and it's not because they they talk it about it all the time though of course you know if you if you push a little they're happy to do so but it's more that like if you look around like the vast majority of people are not fully committed to whatever you know and i think part of what you do is you try to steer people to find those things that that they can commit to or you can try to lower a barrier to show them like hey the commitments not as hard as you think in this particular area. Right. Right. But these folks are like, they're all in, they're 99%. And that's what they do often to the detriment, frankly, of, of other aspects of their lives. Um, and I guess you get better at noticing them, you know? Um, and I mean now like, that's like, boy, I live for that. Like I love meeting people that, um, even if it's not something I'm interested in mm-hmm. that are all in, you yeah. know? And, and there, that's, that's an interesting, you know, I, I, weirdly, I've never really thought about it that way, but like, it was just very clear to me that Grant was all in. Like if, if, here's the thing, if, if he wasn't gonna do it with me, he was still going to do it. Yeah. I was, I was, uh, I, I, was a helper. I, you know, over time I certainly contributed, um, you know, a great deal to it. Not just, he contributed a great deal to business, and then I also contributed to the art, but that took time, you know? But I could tell that he was all in, and, and that was fun. I mean, it's fun to work with somebody who is basically like, okay, man, if you're not in, like, get out of the way, because I'm still going.
0: hmm And for, for anyone who has the opportunity, I don't even know if they would have the opportunity, but to watch, observe Grant even for 60 seconds...
1: Well, Chef's the, Table on Netflix is yeah, great. Yeah, Chef's Table. Great, yeah, great, yeah. perfect.
0: So, yeah. everybody should have the experience of observing Grant working and focusing. It is I've I've met a lot of people who are good at focusing, who have abnormal focusing abilities and spending the time that we did together in Chicago and the time that I had to observe Grant is it is a next level of focus it's it's really hard to encapsulate in words so chef's table fantastic people should check it out and just watch the level of focus that is permeates the appearance the air the atmosphere it's really something else uh, so to that to 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 that point focus one of the my favorite aspects of of speaking with you and having conversations is the quest, the questions that you raised, right? Like what candle, not just should we have candles? Like that's maybe a good question, but it's probably not the right first question. Like why do restaurants use candles in the first place? Furthermore, why are candles considered romantic, right? Like kind of stepping back,
1: basic stuff. Yeah.
0: What what are other questions that you asked related to Alinea or you, you could certainly bridge to, to other, um, you know, I think it makes sense to to chat about aviary as well. But what are, what are some other questions that that you guys asked that uh, people might might
1: not think to ask? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, Grant set the tone for that um, in our first meeting, not really knowing me, and we started talking. But we didn't even know where to start, right? And he said, "Well, I, I know one thing. I, I want to have wooden tables. Like, I want to have bare wood tables." And I said, "Why?" He said, "Well, why do tables?" Why do fancy restaurants have white tablecloths? They literally call it a white tablecloth restaurant if it's fancy. Why? And I couldn't really – I came up with dumb answers like, oh, it it feels good or it absorbs like a spill or whatever it may be. Um, And he said, no, it's because the table underneath is a piece of shit. (laughs) And he's like – he goes, and you know that. Like as soon as you say it, everyone goes, oh, yeah, I knew that. (laughs) And – you've been at weddings and stuff where you feel under the table and you're like, Oh, it's plywood. Right. But if you go to like a really fancy restaurant, and you feel under the table, guess what? Also plywood, just a little thicker. Um, and he's like, you know, when you rest your arms on the table, even if it doesn't come forefront in your mind, you kind of subconsciously know that they're kind of fooling you. And he's like, why can't we just have like black, beautiful tables? It'll show the food grade. It'll show the plateware great. And then I kind of went like, well, yeah, but like, you know, um, the health department doesn't let you put in Chicago, doesn't let you put silverware right on the table. And if you put a glass there, the condensation will form a little ring and then you have a wear issue. Um, But you'll save $70,000 a year in laundering linens. And so we started going like, well, how do we solve the water problem? Well, you create a fridge that's just above the dew point, 44 degrees, you know, in the winter, maybe a little warmer in the summer because it's higher humidity in Chicago and you just get rid of ice. It's, you know, it's, that's, so you have these cascading decisions that like become part of the art of the place that some of them start from like a really practical thing. Like, Hey, we want to have a quality table. And then all of a sudden you need a little pillow that the silverware goes on because that Martin designed, because you can't put, we didn't want to have placemats. That's too cheap. So all of a sudden we had to design like, you know, a silverware holder. So, it, it just became this cascade of like interesting little art projects um that were there for good reasons and really created a unique atmosphere and it was like one of those things like we never tested it until the day we opened like you couldn't test those things and the very first guy through um the door was um is now a famous chef, chef Sean Brock of husk oh and fantastic yeah, so Excellent he was spot. not he was not yet a chef then two thousand and five. And he was the first guy through the door and he wrote this giant blog post on he it with pictures and everything. You can go see it. And every single thing that we hoped would create an emotional, you know, trigger an emotional reaction, it, it's almost all there. Like I remember going home and seeing that the next day and going, wow, like that shit actually worked (laughs) 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 and you know and it's like right down to the front hallway that was you know a reverse perspective you know stolen from shark cathedral and 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 inverted you know um so all of my interests of architecture and art and science and all of grants you know food and all that like all came together in like a year-long conversation on how to do something and we really fought with the architect and designers and and all that because people would tell us the practical reasons why you needed to do this or that. And we would just go, Nope, no host Dan. Like, you know, we want to greet people in, a, in an open way. Um, and so just little things like that. And then we've taken that on, you know, um, through everything that we've, we've done where we took, you know, seven years, six years to, to build our next place because we didn't have that idea that kept us up at night again. Um, and so, you know when we did then we did it and i think i think editing editing yourself and each other is in an open way is really really painful but really really important and coming
0: back to something you mentioned related to the living room uh the uh, the well off uh yes <laughs> who then create say an art project that is not yeah. uh maybe beautiful but is most often not a viable business. What, how did you apply those questions and rethink the business model to make any of this work financially?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you don't want to be a dilettante, right? Um, and, and so, you know, my biggest fear is that, um, it would work in an artistic way, but wouldn't work as a business. Uh, and so, You know, the, the, the answer is at the beginning, we didn't, I didn't do much. Um, I handled all of our marketing and PR. Like I wrote everything, you know, myself, um, really thought about open sourcing the, the building of the restaurant. Um, you can still go online and and see the, the original business plans and, what logos we were considering using and the, the test kitchen, which was in my house. You know, we didn't tell anyone at the time, but that was my house at the time. And and see the development of this restaurant. Um, and I felt like the open source movement in that way was a good model for what we were trying to, to accomplish. And part of that was people would say, like, a restaurant like this can't make money. And, you know, I, I wrote this little spreadsheet that I called the Universal Restaurant Calculator. And, can, um, can people find that online? No, no, no. But it's, but it would be very unimpressive, um, if they could, but it was, it was basically like how many covers per night. I mean, this is back of the envelope stuff. How many covers per night can you do? What's the check average for food check average for beverage? What are your food costs, beverage costs, labor costs? What's insurance cost, you know, your your lease, your rent, like all those things. Right. Um, And I had enough experience with most of those things to at least give good estimates to it. And so what I started doing is I started modeling other restaurants using the universal restaurant calculator. And um, I had again, this goes to the transparency of data. I had real data for only two restaurants. And from those two, I would then make assumptions about restaurants like the French Laundry, where Grant used to work. One of the greatest restaurants in the history of America, certainly. And, you know, I came up with a number that Grant went, there's no way their revenue's that high or they make that much money. That's impossible. And it was really funny because years later, um, you know, I now work with, with Chef Keller, um, and he's, he's a friend all these years later. And I, I literally pulled that out one day with Grant being there and went like how close am I on this back in 2005 and he's like oh you're within like two or three percent you know and and Grant was just like and it's we're talking about back of the envelope stuff and so you know you ask like where can people start to start a business start on the back of an envelope like one of my favorite exercises is to sit in a restaurant or a small business of some sort and just literally do the back of the envelope. that is the kind of calculation. My dad called it the two-shoebox method, put me through college, right? Like money coming in in one shoebox, money going out in the other. Whatever's left is profit, you know? Um, you know, start that basic. And and we did that. And I didn't really think about the – we did well, but we didn't make a ton of money. Um, Alinea cost $2.2 million to build. Um, I put up a little over a quarter of that myself and found investors for the rest, all of whom I knew. And, um, you know, in the first year we did, you know, we made about 450 to $500,000 on four or $5 million in sales. Um, not a great return, not a terrible return. Um, we then won, you know, best restaurant in America from gourmet magazine. And I was horrified that we won that. Frankly, um, I remember Grant called me. And said, yep, I just got a call from Ruth Reichel. And like we had some stated goals of like, how would we know if this is a success? And one of the things we wrote down was Ruth Reichel declares it the best restaurant in America. And we wrote that because in 1997, she wrote the most exciting place to eat in America is the French Laundry. And Grant was there and cooked that meal and said that the energy – of having someone that he respected so much because Ruth is just a great writer. She's one of the unimpeachable food critics in the history of America. And having her write that in New York times propelled that restaurant to its permanent status. Um, I think that can't happen nowadays, honestly, for other reasons, but this is kind of pre, pre, you know, internet, pre Yelp, all that. And then all of a sudden we got that. And I was like horrified because you know, one of the goals was completed so early, we would have we wouldn't have our like our lodestar, you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, he was like, dear God, can you let me enjoy it for like a minute? (laughs) You know? <laughs> to you, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was getting really <laughs> mad at me. I was like, "That's <laughs> terrible." Like, you know, I mean, I was happy, but I was also like, "Oh no, now what do we do? We need to, <laughs> we need to find another artificial construct here that like go after."
0: Um, and enough of this. Ha- I need to find happiness and get this other happiness out of my out of my face. Like, yeah, this for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, it's
1: about. I really do believe that actually, um, that it's often the process is is so rewarding that when you get something done, it, it can be a letdown, you know? And, um, I wanted that process to go. And then unfortunately, six months later, Grant was diagnosed with stage four cancer and given six months to live. Um, and so weirdly, that was the moment where after he was going through treatment, where I started going into the restaurant at night. Cause remember, I'm not a service professional. I was running the business of the restaurant. Um, I would start going in at night and asking really dumb questions again and you know weirdly um our goal was to keep alinea open for when he came back and mind you he only missed like you know 12 days 14 days of service during really intense chemo and radiation and but he was given six months to live and you know when People are in that situation, and their livelihood is tied to this restaurant. Um, even despite their loyalties, oftentimes they just need to find another job because they're like, "Hey, in four months, this place is going to be closed." So, it was, and, and in the midst of that, we decided to do our first book, really to chronicle, um, you know, his, his, you know, what he had accomplished, because for him, he felt like that would be his legacy um, he thought he was going to die. He was told he was going to die. So in the midst of managing a self created self published book, um, and trying to do that differently and then keeping a dwindling staff motivated, um, trying to let him know that it would still be there when he got well, all of that. I started going, this place is run in strange ways, man. This industry is, is, is not run right, you know? And I started asking like, Basic questions, like if we have a wait list for 100 people on a, on a Wednesday, why do we do 74 people on a Wednesday but 86 on a Saturday? And the answer was because our incentives were misaligned. You know, the service industry as a whole can't run at 100% every single day of the week unless they're incentivized to do so. And you could go like, well, yeah, but every server, they'll make an extra 100 bucks a night or whatever. But they're kind of going like, look, if every night was Saturday, I'd be dead. It's really hard work, you know, so you need to figure out ways of load balancing that, um, and making every day the same and you end up way ahead. So from a business perspective, um, that's when my sort of self-education, uh, in this industry came, came forward and it came forward in a way that I think I was less patient with everything because we were also going through this really difficult emotional time. Um, and so consequently, when i didn't get answers that made any sense instead of being diplomatic about it i would just be like well that's stupid <laughs> <laughs> you know and it, which which cut some of the normal social filter off and i'm sure it wasn't a pleasant time to, to be around anybody but i also think it was accepted within that environment at that time because everyone knew what we were going through and so when we you know years years later when we finally like we're kind of like hey we've got some ideas to build next and the aviary that's when I kind of went like, well, we're going to do things totally differently here. And anyone who's not on board, even though they work for us, like if you're not on board all the way in, like on getting rid of normal reservations and not using telephones and doing all these things, I'm not, you know, you just, we don't have a place for you here. Um, and man, it really worked. <laughs> you know, that was the basis of, you know, I talked to, every software company in the industry asking for their API is asking to build essentially what's options pricing software on top of reservation systems. And OpenTable told me no. And the POS systems told me no. Um, I called theaters and went like, what ticketing system do you use? And and all of those told me no. And um, so I hired a single programmer um, and he and I in six weeks built a really rudimentary booking system, but the first day we turned it on, we sold $562,000 of tickets to a restaurant for the first time first, <laughs> okay, first time ever. Okay, so pause yeah. here for a second. I know
0: sec- we're way ahead. We're no, moving. no. No, this is great. <laughs> right. This is
1: great. So a few
0: a few things for folks who are not familiar. API, app, uh, Application Programming Interface, it's how you can effectively link into someone else's software, POS, point of sale, not piece of shit. And, oh, but
1: it is a piece of shit. <laughs> oh, it may also be a piece <laughs> of shit. Yes.
0: What, was the, what were the design specs that you were looking for? In other words, uh, before you get to the 500,000 plus, yeah, yeah, the snap yeah. of the fingers, Like, what were you trying to fix or what were you trying to
1: create? So I, I get a lot of grief for this, for saying this um, in the industry and in the press. But basically, whenever you make a restaurant reservation, one of the two of you talking is lying to each other. If you think about it, nor other industry form of entertainment uh which dining out is a form of entertainment i know it's sustenance i know there's so much culture embedded in it and all that but you could eat at home right um no other form of entertainment you just call them up and say hey hold a seat to the bears game or the cubs game or the opera and i'll show up around seven thirty. <laughs> and then they tell you yeah yeah we'll have a seat ready for you at 7 and and then when you get there, they go, Oh, you know what? Go wait over there for 30 or 40 minutes, because we're running a little behind tonight. You know? Um, the reason that they're running behind is because they overbooked because about 15 to 18% of the people just don't show up. So they overbook. They also know that if they tell you that they'll really seat you at 9 and you want it in 815, you'll just go to the restaurant down the street from them that will lie to them. <laughs> right? Right. So so they so they do that and ultimately it's just bad all around it's bad for the restaurant it's wasteful for food um and it's bad hospitality like and that's like there are so many pop culture references and and entire sitcom you know episodes built around someone trying to get into a restaurant right it's absurd it's completely absurd and you know i looked at our no show rate at alinea data-driven tracked it i looked at our um What we call short seated tables, like the number of tables that were four people, but only two showed up. And the dirty secret there is like people would go like, well, what do you have available? "Uh, Well, I have an 830 for four. Okay, we'll take that. And they never intended to bring the other two people. Well, that's just as bad as a two top no showing. We only have 74 people in there. And so it's a yield management – or 74 seeds. So it's a yield management problem. And so we – 5 to 8% of our revenue every night was, was being lost to that transaction. That was a non-transaction, right? And so I wanted to figure out ways um, to do two things. One, I wanted to figure out ways to make it transactional. Because again, you asked about Professor Thaler. One of the key tenets is there's a little bit of skin in the game, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, When when people have a small vested interest in something, in the outcome of something, or even if I gave you a pencil as a gift, and then 30 minutes later I want to take it back, you will get so mad even though you didn't care about that pencil. (laughs) Right. Right? Because you're like, what was that? Yeah, dude gave me a gift. Now he's pulling it back. You yeah, know? it's
0: like the expected. Uh, it's like the expected value of a mug. If you uh, ask them how much they would spend to buy the mug versus giving them the mug and saying how much will you accept to sell it, you know the
1: differential. <laughs> yes, huge. So you know it, that came to me one day because I, I my my kids wanted to go see a movie at night that I did not want to go see, and I was really really like I would have easily paid fifty bucks to not go to this movie, right? Yeah, and then. My wife basically says, Hey, well let's go to that movie. So I go on Fandango, I buy four tickets, sixty bucks, whatever it was, and at like five thirty at night, it's pouring rain and everyone's napping. And they're like, Yeah, I don't wanna go. And I'm like, Get your asses in the car, we're going to the movie, man. <laughs> <laughs> now I would have easily paid that sixty dollars to not go to the movie, but once I had the sunk cost of of paying for the movie my psychology totally flipped, <laughs> and and I was like, "We're going to this movie that I don't want to go to." Like, and I literally irrationally made everyone go to the movie, like, which weirdly cost you know. I mean, from an emotional family standpoint, all bad all the way around, right? And um, so I, I thought about it, and I was like, "Wow, what if people? What if people put down a small deposit on times when demand exceeds supply?" Like, right? So Saturday night, at eight o'clock great. That's, a, that's the best seats at the opera house. Let's see if people prepay for that or put down 20 bucks for it. That's fully credited at the end of their meal. It's not a cover charge. I'm not trying to squeeze people on the actual cost of the meal. I'm just trying to go like, yeah, let's see if people make a commitment. And everybody told me, no, no one's going to do that. Like, this is not the way it works. But if you look back historically, and this is the interesting part. Again, it's about like digging in deep on something. If you look back historically, um, restaurant reservations started with the telephone. And at the time that we were starting to do this, the telephone was dying. And I didn't know that at the time, you know, I was eight years ago, but I have a computer in my pocket. And if you ring me and I don't know your number, I don't want to talk to you. I don't answer it. I'd much rather receive like a little piece of text letting me know what's going on than a phone call. Um similarly, like calling a restaurant is an antiquated thing to do at this point. But long before the telephone, people got room and board. And what room and board was literally, it was like you go to an inn and you you get a room for the night, and then do you need food? Okay, well you get a board of food. That was literally it. And you'd prepay for it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was hundreds of years of that long before there was a telephone and people called and said, Yep, like you know, I'd like to eat at your restaurant. Sure, we'll let you in. Um, and so as the technology for the telephone has morphed into you know, what we all have in our pockets now, um, I just wanted to update that whole transaction. And so I also wanted to acknowledge that Tuesday nights should be cheaper than a Saturday night. So it, it has to work in both ways. I always thought Uber could have fixed their their surge pricing issues by having discounted pricing when there was no demand, like mm-hmm. just move pricing in two directions. Mm-hmm. And if you move pricing in two directions, then like that whole argument goes away, right? Um, and so, so we did that. We 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 priced out different prices by day of the week and times a day. So 5 p.m. on Wednesday at Alinea is still cheaper than 8 p.m. on a Saturday, mm-hmm. by a lot, by eighty to a hundred dollars a person. Wow. Um, and and you know what happens? Um, And this is now we have, you know, hundreds of restaurants doing this on our software called Talk. Um, What happens is people buy the most expensive seats first and the cheapest seats first, which is exactly what you'd expect, actually. Right. Because there's some people who are price conscious and go like, wow, this is a really expensive meal. But holy cow, I don't really care if I eat at five o'clock on a Tuesday. Great. Like I can save 400 bucks. Um, And then there's some people that go like, I only eat at 8 p.m. on Saturday. Well, okay, that's fine. Pay a little more. Or they're and, or they're attracted to the fact
0: that it is the most expensive.
1: Sure. That yeah. happens too. Uh-huh. And then there's there's a whole bunch of tools that over time we built on top of that to sell wine pairings or sell books. You know, we sell twenty linea books a day on checkout with the booking process. Mm-hmm. That's a ton because we're not going to exit through the gift shop at Alinea. It's a Michelin three star restaurant. So, <laughs> so like we would subtly have like one book like near the restrooms that people could peruse, but it didn't say like buy the book or anything like that. So typically we'd sell like one or two per night. Um, now on checkout, um, when you book Alinea, it says, "Hey, would you like to buy an Alinea book personalized?" And twenty people a night get it. That is four hundred thousand dollars in revenue a year. Yeah, that's incredible. It's crazy, right? And it's amazing to me that no one did that beforehand um, because ultimately people can't buy what they don't see and people don't want to be upsold inside of a restaurant. There's nothing worse in my mind than, you know, some places that today's special is today's special and it's real and you you kind of know that, but sometimes it's just the old fish. <laughs> right. Uh-huh.
0: Sunday night.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. And we all know these things. And like, I think no restaurant wants to like raise their hand and go, yep, that's all true. Like yeah, we were aligned yeah. to our customers and, and we we're not going to really see you at 815. And so I think when I said that, like, you can look back through some articles. Um, I remember that there's an article, I think it was in GQ, that um, they interviewed like a grizzled veteran, you know, and you know, he didn't use his name and said, you know, I'm um, and a bar to wait in has always worked for me. <laughs> and I was just like, how does that not sound like terrible hospitality to everyone reading that? You
0: know? Yeah, yeah for sure. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. There's so, there's so many systems that have uh, similar overbooking load balancing issues, right? You look at airlines, you look at hospitality.
1: You, yep. it, 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 My dentist. Yeah. I, I have a great dentist. They only do it via phone call or email. And so I have to play a guessing game. It's like going into a clothing store and going like, yeah, I'm looking for a blue V-neck cashmere sweater. They're like, nah, don't have one. Guess again. <laughs> like, it's like, put this shit on display, man. Like, just tell me what day you could clean my teeth. Show me. And I'll just go online and hit the button. You know?
0: <laughs> so the, when you then debuted the... Uh... The, the ticketing option if I'm if I'm if I'm yeah. labeling it properly, how did you prime the pump for that? Was there anything did you need to prime the pump to have this what seems like certainly a windfall?
1: Well, we uh, did. Yeah, we did a a uh, a video where you know next restaurant was about a restaurant that's always new. Essentially, like what's what's one of the big problems uh, of the restaurant industry? Well, when you open a new restaurant, doesn't matter what it is, people are going to show up for like five or six months. And then after that, um, you know, you got to struggle to like get regulars and, and, you know, like find new audiences and all that, but people like the new quote unquote, right. Um, the other problem is, is that our own staff and chefs were the kind of people who I said to Grant one time, he cooked this amazing French dish for me at Alinea right in the middle of his sickness because I had driven down from Michigan. I've never eaten before or after in, in the Alinea kitchen, but he whipped up this little French dish for me of duck. And I was like, man, let's open a French restaurant someday. And he went like, ah, we'll get bored after six months. And I, then I was at um, one of our chef's homes on a day off, Tuesday, and he made—he loves Thai food, and he made this amazing Thai meal, amazing. And I was like, wow, Like I had no idea these guys were so versatile, you know? And then it made sense. Hey, these are passionate, amazingly talented people. And it kind of dawned on me, like, let's just change the restaurant every four months. <laughs> like, you know, let's, let's do – and then we dwelled on that for like a year, thinking like it was kind of impossible um, to do. And then, you know, Grant said – I said, well, like, let's start with a French menu. And he's like, well, what does that mean? Like there's southern France. There's Loire Valley. There's France that's the Nouvelle Cuisine. And then there's France from like, you know, 100 years ago. Totally different. And I was like, yep, Paris 1906. I don't need to explain to you what that is you'd want to eat that if i just said like if someone said hey new restaurant opening what's the menu it's paris 1906 i'd go like cool like i want to do a little time travel and see what that was like and so as soon as we had like a city and a time we instantly knew that was the idea that kept us up at night you know where we went like wow look at all these different places we can travel and what does that restaurant look like? And how do you create a kitchen versatile enough to make all these different cuisines? And, and how do you make it not feel like Disneyland where one time you have a theme of Paris and the next time you have a theme of Japan. So you have to go with like an austere minimalism, you know, and, um, is there a so particular you, reason why you chose the year 1906, you know, i um, doing some research. Um, uh, and I may get the exact date wrong cause this is eight years ago. I did the research, but I believe the Seine flooded in 1908. Mm -hmm. Um, Somewhere around there. Um, And so um, Escoffier, um, like the father of French cuisine, um, was at the Ritz then. And that was kind of like the height of that era of cuisine. And then after the Seine flooded, that's where you got sort of your brasseries and bistros because they had to kind of go to a more casual – it opened up for more people. It, right. it took the price point down. It made it more approachable and it wiped out dozens of these fancy restaurants. And so like rent got cheap and all of a sudden like, Hey, like we're gonna get this new style of restaurant. That's roughly, as I recall it, somebody's going to listen to this and tell me I'm all wrong. But um, that's where we landed because we could do this as scoffier menu. Mm-hmm. And um, boy, we argued about that too. Like they didn't have blenders then. So, so like electric blenders. So, I mean, we did like a pre- so, you,
0: so you wanted to mimic the production
1: well i did grant did not <laughs> so 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 we 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 were i remember we were at a we invited the press to a practice dinner <laughs> grant's at a like hey pal you don't have to make the food <laughs> well <laughs> partly that but partly he was like should we make it intentionally worse than we can <laughs> yeah hey. because the recipes were really vague they didn't yeah. even call for salt Yeah. So so in the middle of this press dinner where we had like the New York Times there, we had all sorts of these people there, which I'll never do again. Right. That was just a a genuine error. Like and like like we were still arguing out conceptually what this thing would be. And then we served dinner and and we were like openly like he'd come out of the kitchen and we would openly argue about it, you know, and and this is this is, this is at the press dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I remember he brought the soup out, and it was like, you know, he was like, I was like, oh, they, they must have used, like, the actual blenders, right? Like, modern blenders, because it was like, the mouthfeel was, like, perfect, right? And so I was like, oh, you, you used the blenders, you know? And he was like, the recipe didn't call for salt either, did it? But I should I have not used that and had it taste like shit? <laughs> you know? And And then I was like, well, maybe you don't know that they didn't have refrigeration then either, and they packed – the vegetables in salt as a desiccant and so they were almost all pre-salted by the time they get to paris and that was it like people were just like these guys don't like each other at all <laughs> <laughs> but but that was that was that's our method like that's what we did you know <laughs> and um i mean to the day we opened we we had those those arguments um and then you know in terms of the software like Man, like I didn't sleep for a week. Um, we set it up on Rackspace. It didn't work right. I had never done anything like that before. Um, you know, it was like no one would help. <laughs> I think, like, like you know, nobody would help. No when, one. When my, you
0: say nobody would help, you mean competitors, potential? Uh, I don't even. Potential know allies. Potential like these potential are people.
1: Companies. I got it. People, why wouldn't they help? I Don't I? You know, like in the case of Open Table, they had a monopoly. Right. So why that, that, why that
0: makes sense to me. That makes yeah,
1: sense. Um, in terms of everyone else, I think they didn't, just didn't get it. Um, but even people within my own company thought this was a fool's errand. You know, like Grant for sure. Like he will fully admit this now. Thought it was a terrible idea. Why did he think it was a terrible idea? Because it's not hospitable. Mm-hmm. It's not
0: hospitality. It's, not, not, it's not, not. It's not. It's not. It's low touch, not high touch.
1: Correct. Mm-hmm. And 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 hugely. The case where, you know, all of a sudden the price is different every day? Like, are people going to get that? And I just kept looking to other industries, and I'm like, no one has a problem with it when they go to a baseball game. They're not sitting on the uh, – you know, above the dugout. And then, like, the guy who's in the third deck back row looks down and goes, oh, that guy, like, he totally stole that ticket from me. <laughs> like, they're, they're like two different price points, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I just feel like people inherently get that without having to explain it to them. How – how- Uh, If I I may,
0: how far in advance of the opening (laughs) were you, were you hoping to launch the software and when did you end up launching the software?
1: Yeah. Um, I launched it about seven hours before the first dinner. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) Um, I hope to have done it four to five weeks ahead of that. It was literally a one man operation plus me, like one programmer and me. Um, when we launched it, um, Rackspace. This is 2010. I'm not saying anything bad about Rackspace. It was. I didn't. I probably set it up wrong. Uh, 2010. Um, it did not like. It's supposed to auto load, correct, and self propagate, and it neither happened. I was expecting. We had 17,000 people on our email list that had signed up on the website to like be notified when when the bookings went on sale, and I was expecting maybe you know 700 show up. Like should be fine. And something like eight or 9,000 showed up. And everyone just kept hitting the refresh key. Oh, and God. here's another fatal error um, of stupidity. And, and this is not the way our software is built now because we have professionals here. But uh, basically, my admin login was on the very same server as everybody's public access. Oh, God. So I couldn't even go into configure <laughs> it up. So I, I, and the, the good news on this is that I couldn't answer, like, hundreds of angry emails all at once. So I created a Facebook group, um, for the business, which in 2010, not very many people did. And so if you go back and scroll all the way down to the beginning of that, you'll see me going like, Hey, if everyone could please stop refreshing, (laughs) I can sort this out. And what was really cool is that people felt part of something. Mm -hmm. Um, they felt like, wow, holy shit. This guy is actually doing this himself. Um, we're part of this experiment Um, and we're on the inside of it. Um, I got a lot of empathy from the customers, even though they were the ones that were unable to get what they wanted. And then when it finally started working, I mean, I literally not showered in five days. I had pizza boxes laying around. It looked like a bad movie startup thing. I, I had a beard, like I was, you know, just strung out manic. And I remember I called Grant and it was opening day and he said, how many should I prep for? And I said, prep for full, like, cause, if not, we'll turn on the phones. What I didn't tell them was that I didn't order the phones because I didn't want to have a failsafe. <laughs> You'd burn the ships. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would. I just wanted to make sure it. I, I forced myself to work, so we had no phone line. And um, I, it, when it started working, I would double click. You know, one of the functions was I could double click on a table, and if it was um, yellow. It was held. The public couldn't see it. I could make it available by double-clicking it. It would turn green. And then when it was sold, it would turn red. But the first time I did that um, to act to let more inventory out um, and clearly things were working, it turned red so fast I thought it was broken. <laughs> and so then I went into the credit card processing and saw, oh, my gosh, someone bought that that fast. And I called Grant and I said, dude, you got to come to my house. And – he was like, uh, we're opening a restaurant in like six hours. What's going on? I said, as the guy who helped save your life, get in a fucking taxi and come over here because I need to show you something. And he looked at me and kind of went like, what is wrong with you, right? And and I took him upstairs to my office and I said, I explained what I just to him what I just explained to you. And I said, click on one of those and make it available. And he said, which one? I go, any one in the next month and he clicked like 3 weeks out at 9:30 and it instantly turned red and in another window i had the credit card thing up and i go look mr jones bought that and he went really and i'm like yep there are you know 4000 people waiting for you to do that right now and that was the moment at which i i was basically like this is the best thing i've ever built because be, because it was, it was it was it was it was functionally different than any way that anybody was doing this, it wasn't novel. It was just applied in a novel way, and so, you know, what was interesting is that, of course, the software itself sucked, but as a proof of concept, it was awesome. Yeah. Qu-
0: quick question on that: if you're comfortable answering, how much, yeah. how much money had you put into developing the software at that point? Uh, uh, yeah. yeah R- roughly, I'm gonna say $115,000. Yeah. Okay. So in your mind, were you completely confident it would work or, and there's, it doesn't have to be A or B, there could be C, D, E, F, or were you like, you know what, for 115K or whatever it might be, even if you budgeted for less and it overran, the, the, even if there is a 20% chance that this works, is, it is worth risking the hours and time because it will so completely transform what we're doing. And if it fucking fails, who cares?
1: Correct. Yeah. The the latter one. Yeah. Again, it's about the asymmetric risk. Right. And it was also about this thing that as I dug into how Alinea ran, there's like things that you can fix and control and there's things you can't. Right. And this was the one that, you know, I would answer phones at Alinea and I would, it was like being a therapist. People would go like, I would like to, you know, make a reservation on my anniversary, you know, seven weeks from now on a Thursday. And you're like, I'm really sorry, sir. It's totally full. And 100 f- percent of the time they thought it, you were lying to them. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and 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 so consequently, like I realized that we were saying no to people more than we were saying yes. And that even when we said no in a nice way and took 10 minutes to do so, um, people thought that we were lying. Or that they weren't important to us, or any of those things, and so I felt that transparency was actually more important than the actual money um, and the actual yield management. I felt like like allowing people to see the entirety of the inventory was the most important thing, and I, I had this re- like same thing with like you know the trading markets. Um, they've moved to more and more and more transparency, um, more and more speed. Um, this is true across every industry. And I just felt like, wow, this industry I, I found myself in was so backwards. And so I just wanted to make the whole thing more transparent. And so even if it didn't go beyond my own restaurants, I was totally fine with that. In fact, I didn't do anything with it for four years. Um, and I, I didn't really intend on making it you know, like a software product. I intended on fixing my own problems. And I think often that's where... That's where good ideas come from.
0: Oh, super often. Yeah, the scratching of your own itch. At least you know you have a market of one, Guar- yes. guaranteed market of one. And I, I also want to point out when we were talking about asymmetric risk earlier, and you're like, well, I want to stand to make three to 4X what I stand to lose. And if you run the math, and I'm, I'm sure I'm missing a lot of subtleties here, but when you said we booked 500X, thousand dollars and it cost one hundred and fifteen like we're getting very much within the ballpark of that yeah but I didn't
1: even like i mean well I mean since then it's like we've taken our margins at our restaurants from ten to twelve percent to you know at times in good months twenty to twenty five percent um in an industry that over the last five years if you read i give a talk called tuesday is not saturday and seven things you already know but are doing nothing about um it's a talk that i give to the restaurant industry and you know one of the things that that i point out in there is that you know there's so many obvious things that you could be doing to improve your hospitality to improve your booking process to get rid of food waste Um, but people tend to just kind of move along because it's a really chaotic environment. It's hard to make change in it because every day is game day. Like you wake up every day and a hundred people are going to come through the door. And if your fishmonger doesn't show up all you need to figure out what to do with that, you know? And so it's, it's not really about the return on that one investment at that one moment. It's more like, you know, a thousand small improvements over time. And, you know, th- what, if I look back at that system that I built then compared to what we have now, um, you know, it's a minuscule part of what it turned into. Um, but it was the seed of an idea which is more important, which is, hey, let's let's shake things up. And then I, I got a great CFO um, who was at Bain Consulting, and he, he came on to, like, help manage the building of the project of Next um, and when he started wanting to build out a business team, I was like, great, like, run with it. And so we've built out food cost analysis that uses Merameco charts. And it's totally different because it's visual and you give that to the chefs. It and, uses what charts? Ah, uh, Merameco. Uh, if, you have, if you don't know Merameco, if you get nothing out of this, one of the greatest visualizations um, in, in charts that you could, like, you know, do in Excel or whatever. Um, hard to do v- vocally, um, but imagine a square where each um, of your x-axis is the percentage of, let's say, food costs. And then um, each square within there is like, I don't know, meat or produce. But the whole of the square is 100%. The y-axis is 100% of one metric. And the x-axis is 100% of another. So you could kind of look at any given square and see how much that impacts the whole. It becomes like a big Lego building with different colors. Um, if you give a busy chef 400 receipts and say, Hey, every Friday, look through all these and, you know, figure out what we're spending too much on or worse. Hey, your food costs last month were 36%. I need them at 32%. Um, you can't take percentages to the bank. Let's talk about dollars. Let's see where we can save some dollars. Um, or the revenue could have just gone down that month for whatever reason. It's August in New York. And so it's not really a good way to look at it. But you give this person this, this chart, this Marimekko. Now, Merameco, I'm, I'm this looking at... guy's up, name. Yeah. yeah, it's M-A-R-I-M-E-K-K-O
0: chart. Is that right? I
1: think, Again, not, not good at spelling, I think so. but sure. I, I yeah. think so.
0: There is a Google result, which is how to make a Merameco chart in Excel. So I'm guessing that's probably it. There's some that YouTube, is it. YouTube videos as well. So I'll, I'll put those yes. in the show notes for people.
1: Man, I got to tell you, like from a utility perspective you show that to a person, you explain it visually, like when you see it it makes much more sense. And they instantly get it and they look at it and they're like, "Oh, there's no way I spent that much on facial last month." <laughs> you know. And, and this instantly. can be
0: this can be used for things outside. Everything.
1: Okay. Everything. Yeah, it's Not it's, just food, not just restaurants. Oh, no, no, no. It's it's just a great visualization of utility and like consultants love it and i got to tell you i don't love consultants in general <laughs> but 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 if, but if i've learned anything from from the best consultant that i've ever hired like who who is now my partner and cfo um he, you know he came in, up with this and as soon as i saw it i was like how did this not enter my life until my 40th year? This makes no sense. You know, um, it's just incredibly useful. But my point is, is that we, we kind of went through everything in the restaurant and went like, well, what are the biggest spending areas that we can like analyze? And, um, it's true in any endeavor, uh, that you're doing. You, you know, there's no point looking at, at the dimes. If, if you've got something that costs a thousand dollars, start there. So, um, you know, and that's, you know, getting into like our thoughts on, our publicity, our PR, like we don't have a professional PR person, and haven't in fourteen and a half years. Um, we we don't spend money on any promotions other than social media. Um, and then with the social media, we we track all of that. You know, um, we can see what our ROI is on a boosted post. Um, we can see what our ROI is if we advertise on your podcast. Um, right. You know, those are. That's that's why these mediums are are working um, is because they're measurable.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I was looking up just as you were chatting, and as I was also looking for Marimekko, a quote that I think applies, and you may certainly feel free to disagree, but applies very well to a lot of the breakthroughs that that you have experienced and also helped to catalyze in uh, a lot of what you've done. And it's a quote from Charlie Munger, who, for those who don't know, you should definitely take a look at poor Charlie's almanac. He's the, the, the right hand, or I shouldn't even say that. He is the investing partner of Warren Buffett and a fascinating, fascinating human being. But one of, one of the quotes of his that I really return to a lot when I think I might be outsmarting myself in some way uh, or in general, as a reminder, is quote it is remarkable how much long term advantage people like us have gotten by trying to be consistently not stupid instead of trying to be very intelligent
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, uh, right yeah, be- I
0: mean be- be- because you you as you noted earlier, you have these practices that uh, are being implemented by otherwise in many cases, smart people who've just not taken the time to ask, why are we doing this? Why does this exist as a thing? Why, what, why does, like you pointed out, it's so uh, obvious once you reframe it, like you walk into a clothing store and they're like, okay, what are you looking for? Nope, sorry, guess again. It's like, that's fucking ridiculous, right? And, and yet, that's exactly the way it works in many other places.
1: Yeah, yeah. and And that's, you know, once you start down that road of thinking that way, uh, it will drive you a little nutty <laughs> because you, you start, like you can't do every business, you know? And, um, you know, there's a couple things that I've got in my back pocket that I'm kind of like, you know, one day I'm going to arbitrage truffles <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's like, there's an opaque market that's absurd. Like, you know, it's like, here here's an example. I'm going to give somebody out there, call me up because this is a real business idea um, and I've been wanting to do it for years, but you know, black and white truffles, not the kind, not the chocolate ones, but the kind that the dogs dig up in France and Italy, um, are as expensive as the most expensive drugs in the world. Um, you order them as if it were an illegal drug. And of course they're perfectly illegal, but you call up a truffle dealer. Um, and you go like, you know, what do they cost? Well, they're, you know, 650 a pound right now for black truffles, 1600 for white. You try to talk them down a little bit you make sure that you get the best quality cuz hey we're Alinea and we will ship you back the stuff we don't like and all that and then in an unmarked box stacked with newspaper will come $20,000 of truffles good for like a week by the way like not like this is not like a big supply and it is completely opaque as a market um there is no mycologist touching these um there are Knockoffs from, but not knockoffs. There's different species and quality from Australia, from Tennessee, from from China, um, et cetera, et cetera. That they cut into it <laughs> sounds familiar. <laughs> um, and and like it was my like we spend a lot of money on truffles every year, um, and try to figure out what the U.S. market in the fall truffle season is worth. You can't. It's exactly like publishing. You can't find numbers. You know, and so whenever I whenever I see something like that, I'm like someone's guarding their their golden goose, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Whenever whenever it's a black
0: box, you're like, I feel like I am not on the best side of this trade. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right.
1: And and that's that's what I did. Um, you know, I did um, a closed in seller network between the Merck and the Amex to arbitrage ETFs to get rid of the phone brokers in the middle. Um, that took me like a year and a half to get through the Merck and Amex, um, powers that be, um, read like most of the CFTC. So when they would tell me it's not like in the rules or not legal or whatever, what is feel you know, like, CFTC Chicago trade, uh, no, something, no, no. this is the, uh, the federal, um, commodities trading commission. Oh, I see. Okay. It's like the sec, but for commodities. I gotcha. Um, and you know, again, sit down and actually read that someday. Like what's amazing is that the experts never it's like it's like the members of Congress who don't read the bill. And then if you ask them detailed instructions on it, they're like, Oh yeah, I don't really know. But the general tenor is this or that. Um the people who were governing the exchanges had never read the rules. So they would just quote <laughs> to me they would just quote to me like, Oh, well, it's against the rules, and I'd be like, Well, here are the seven volumes. Please show me where. If not, I'm gonna do it, you know? Um and so similarly, like like truffles, same thing. Um, the the you know the booking um, for the restaurants same thing open table had a monopoly they wouldn't tell you who your customers were they would sell your customers they still do to other restaurants if you you know if you're full one night they'll just send you down the street to a Japanese restaurant down the street they don't care so I wanted to get rid of all that so I built the software for that truffles I will someday build a truffle exchange <laughs> <laughs> so question for you yeah. the, this is
0: this is uh, this is something also for this is maybe just turning this into a therapy session/ coaching session for, <laughs> for myself but I get attracted like a moth to the flame to puzzles. And oh, uh, I've got a puzzle uh, for you. No, well, no, no. I don't <laughs> need any more puzzles. I need no more puzzles. But you, there are many, many black boxes out there, right? You, you have truffles, and like you said, it's like, all right, what's the market size of the truffle exchange at X point in time? Don't know, right? Uh, although you guys. Uh, as one establishment or multiple establishments buy a lot, there might be a hundred different black boxes like that that you run into. How do you choose the black boxes worth trying to shine light on like a detective? Because the, it's going to consume energy, it's going to consume time. How do you pick and choose which to go after?
1: It's 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 like the manic test, right? Like it's like the one that bothers me the most (laughs) (laughs) Like I kind of start doing you know Um, And then uh, you know, and then it's iterative from there like sometimes you find yourself in a construction of your own doing that was accidental Mm -hmm. Like all of a sudden, you know, you kind of opened your mouth and and said something like the truffle thing and all of a sudden like Well, okay, I guess we're building the truffle exchange You know, (laughs) I feel like I feel like um, the boring company is like that for musk like, like, like he, he opened his mouth and be like, yeah, just big, big, you know, dig big tunnels. And he's got enough credibility now where some engineers went like, yeah, we could build, you know, we could dig tunnels that are seismically fine. And like, Hey, you work for SpaceX. Okay. Like, let's see if you could build a, dig a tunnel. <laughs> I don't think that was like a business plan, you know? Right. Um, and, and he just has a lot of credibility, um, you know, at this point. Um, I think that to a certain extent, like, a lot of people have a lot of ideas. They just don't dig down that that rabbit hole. And um, so, you know, I I do some as like a hobby. Um, I do some where I kind of have someone that I like within our company and say, well, if you really wanted to be independent and do something cool, like here's a project. Like learn more about this and start researching it. You know, we have you know 300 and some employees on the restaurant side and about 50 on talk. Um, many of them are incredibly hardworking and intelligent. And when someone says, Hey, I want to learn how to be more entrepreneurial. I take one of my black boxes out and say, well, let's see if that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Because (laughs) (laughs) this is going to take you six months of independent work without any guidance and you're going to get tired of it really fast. Or you're going to come back to me and say, Hey, you know what? Like I can't figure out the total value of the truffle market in the United States. I'm like, yeah, no shit. That's why I asked you to do it. <laughs> now, when you give them
0: an assignment like this, they are like, you know what, boss, I really want to be an entrepreneur. You're like, congratulations. I'm now giving you a project. And A, it's on your time and you're not getting paid for it. Or do you – Oh, no, no, the- no, no.
1: It's not – oh, no, no, no. I, I, I never, never, never take – every single intern that works at our restaurants for a minute is paid. Gotcha. So even yeah, if, so, I don't, so, so I don't, they do get paid for the black box time. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I would never, like, I think one of the things that I really dislike actually are industries like where they say, Hey, like you're, you know, you're in college or whatever, you know, be an intern. And then, you know, your parents say, yeah, that's a great opportunity for you to learn something and all that. And it's like, well, you're probably not, if you're not getting paid, you're not being valued, frankly. And, um, for me, I, we, we pay everybody. Um, like I, I don't, nobody who's working here, if they're, you know, I I do expect that, you know, salaried people are going to work more than just the time here. And I think that people who are passionately curious will be given a problem like that, and will come up with interesting solutions to finding out what the answer may be. And that's, that's enough, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I want to add some sort of commentary on the
0: question that I asked, which is, uh, I think it's incredible that you do pay them for that independent research, which is also acting as entrepreneurial training slash filtering for them. Uh, but I wouldn't have judged you harshly at all if you said, no, that's on their own time. And the reason I say that is that if you are going to be investigating black boxes as an entrepreneur, there are going to be periods of time where you are doing it in the evenings. You're doing it on the weekends. You are doing it without a clear road to immediate cash flow, right? So I wouldn't have judged you if you said, you know what, I am paying them full time for their normal job. But if they want to tackle one of these black boxes, that's considered extracurricular time. Uh, so I wouldn't have judged you harshly, uh, if you had responded in the uh, in the negative on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I guess, you know, to to back up a little bit, like when there are people who I don't know, who do not work for our company, and they call me up and say, Hey, I've got this idea for X, Y, Z or whatever, and it's intriguing enough, I will, I will pose some more difficult questions, but they're not working for me. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a guy who brought me a food product that I, I, you know, about a year ago and it was interesting, but not super compelling. And I said, Hey, if you did these five things, it would be a lot more compelling for me to be involved and and to help with it and all that. And yesterday I got a box in the mail and he had done not only the five things I said, but said, hey, when I started doing those, these seven other things popped up. Here's where the product is. Here's the people we signed. Here's the airline we just signed to, to carry the product. And I would love to have you still involved, even though we're so much farther down the road than I thought it'd be a year later. That's super cool. Like, yeah, I didn't yeah. pay that guy, obviously, mm-hmm. but there's a person who's truly entrepreneurial, right, and did this yeah. on his own time. Um, but if they're working here, if they work for the Alinea Group, if they work for Talk, like – for sure, that you know, you could take time during your day, like doing your normal business. That's a project that we're working on, and um, you know, we we also try not to have such harshly defined roles. Not within the restaurant. Like, look, if you're a server, if you're a captain, if you're a, a line cook, um, you're probably not working on my truffle project. You know? <laughs> uh, just because, like, it's you right. don't have. To, I mean, realistically, uh, you know, that's not that's. But on the business side, um, we certainly have um, people who who work in roles, um, as like a lawyer or an analyst or something like that, who want to get involved with our publishing project or who want to get involved with the truffle project or whatever it may be. And, you know, I'm happy to, to pull them in and try to include them. And, you know, like you said, you, you used a a word as an entrepreneurial filter. Um, I would say 95% of the time people filter themselves out. Right.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, they're going self, to they self-select go. or self-select out. Yeah. Uh, are there any particular books or resources that you've found useful on hiring
1: or managing? God, if you found one, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, hiring is so hard. I think it's the hardest of all things to do. Um, and I think my style of interviewing people is totally different than it was 20 years ago. Um, we used the word self-selecting just a moment ago and it's exactly what I do. I kind of bring people in. I let them know what I'm about, what the company is about. They've probably already been interviewed by other people before they, they get to me. And so at that point I I let them know, like, what are the upsides and downsides of working here? You know, and I kind of let them know what the expectations are. And then I, I tell them like people self-select into a job. And you don't want to come here if you're going to fail because that would be terrible and I don't want you to come here and fail because that would be a waste of my time and resources and would also feel awful. It's never good to let go of someone. It feels terrible. So let's see if you are self-selecting in. What do you want to know? Like I'll be completely transparent about what's good, what's bad, what's good about working for me personally, the fact that maybe you'll never see me again, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's it's like a big enough organization where, you know, there are definitely people working here who, who I don't know at all. Um, but people tend to join organizations where they want to work. And so I, I try to make that process. I try to make them be able to say no easier than they can say yes. What would be some examples of how you do that? You know i i I kind of judge the person by by what their pain points are and so if someone says like you know one of the things i i like to ask you know which it kind of resonates probably with with you as i say hey what are the last five books you read and i gotta tell you that's a really hard question to answer um because even if you're a voracious reader it's really like you remember like a book from two years ago, but you can't remember the one you read two months ago sometimes. Totally. At least I can't, you know. And so that is a great filter on people because a couple things will happen. One, the person who's a voracious reader will go like, oh, my God, I swear to God, I, I read like 20 books this year. Um, let's see. And they will really start going, oh, well, I read one like three months ago that was this and it was about that. And you could tell that they're intellectually curious and and read a lot. Um, you'll also get a person who goes, look, I haven't read a book in 20 years, but every night I go home and I do woodworking (laughs) and that's my outlet. Like that's where I focus. That's my Zen moment. And that's a valid answer to that question too. You know, like you don't have to be a reader some people will just lie through their teeth (laughs) 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 and they'll, they'll answer what they think is the smart answer to that question. And I I don't want that person there. I read read war and peace.
0: And then I went to the problems of philosophy and, uh... yes, yes,
1: yes. (laughs) And then the four hour work week. So, so definitely not the right answer. (laughs) So, so, um, so there's that. And I asked that kind of question, but then like things like, do you enjoy writing? like, (laughs) I like one of my like one of my things is like if someone doesn't like to write, what do we when people ask what I do for a living? I say I'm a writer and they go like, oh, you've written a couple of books. And I go, no, no, no. I write about 400 emails a day. And that skill is hugely important right now. Um, if someone doesn't like to write, they're not going to want to work for me because when when they send out an email and I, I'm CC on it and it isn't a well thought out little thing the answer coming back is like, Hey, here's four ways to improve this. Um, and at some point it'll be like, really, you, you did that same mistake again. Like it it comes off kind of harsh in email, you know? Um, and so if you're the kind of person that doesn't take feedback well or doesn't want to learn like, man, I don't, I, I'm lacking patience for that at this point in my life. Um, and I let them know that. And some people like look at you and just go like, yeah, dude, I don't want to work there. Like more than I would think. Which is great.
0: Yeah, simplifies matters.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it, it's not—it's not—it's done with a smile. You know, I'm not like trying to like terrorize people when they come in an interview. And then there's some people that go like, "Awesome, that's exactly what I want." And um, you know, we have everything from like you know t- double PhD engineers to um, people who've never you know attended a university for a minute, and um, but they've they've self selected into an organization that. Um people ask a lot of questions. I love that like I can be in a room and come up with an idea and everyone there will just be like, well, that's a great idea. There's no way we're gonna be able to do that in the next six months. Because that's not that's not in our that's not in our capacity at our size right now.
0: I think a question on a lot of people's minds and a pain point for most people listening will be email. So you seem to be at least confident in your treatment of email, Uh, 400 is a lot of email, do you have any particular commandments, do's, do nots, times you check, things you check first, any types of systems or approaches that allow you to maintain a a degree of sanity with with the amount of email that you must receive?
1: (laughs) You're going to hate this answer, too. (laughs) I am terrible at it. Um, it used to be, um, not so long ago, uh, that I personally replied to absolutely every single email that came in myself. And I used to have an auto sign that basically was like, if I don't reply to you, um, within five minutes, I'm dead or asleep. (laughs) And it's the opposite of everything that that you stand for. I know that um, it's it's like I was listening to jason fried so Jason fried's a friend. I was listening to his his podcast with you and um i I don't get it at all like i, I I'm not I, I i would I would love nothing more than um you know to rework or to not work um you know. You know, work four day weeks or to have six week projects and all the stuff that he espouses. Um, he's a friend, he's an investor in, in uh, one of my businesses. Um, but man, I don't, that's not how I function at all. Um, and I weirdly think that he misses cause and effect a little bit. Like he has a very successful company and that's the cause that allows the effect, which is the ability to manage your time really well. Um, I live really paranoid. I'm more comfortable that way. (laughs) And also I kind of feel like a a weird moral responsibility to, um, reply to the people who've taken their time out of their day to write us a note, you know, um, even if it's not like critical business for me. Um, and one of the things I did for about 10 years that I I loved doing, uh, when we first started Linia is that I would have Google alerts set up and I would find some blog, you know, that only like, some woman in her mother read, you know, and I would reply personally, like say, wow, thank you for the great write-up of And they would be kind of mind blown that I found it and, and you know, all that. Um, I treated email that way for a long period of time. Um, unfortunately, now I, I can't quite do that so I do have a bunch of filters and whatnot, but I didn't even set them up. Um, my business partner Brian Fitzpatrick, who used to be the head of Google Chicago, and he's my he runs the engineering team. And he's the CTO of Talk. He kind of said like, "Dude, you're you're slipping, man. And like, you know, you need to create some filters and 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 get some stuff that's directly to you." So he went into my Gmail accounts and kind of kind of forced the issue um, for me. Um, but so now I can't quite do that. Um, I do wake up in the morning and look at sort of our our bazillion social media um, uh, messages and whatnot, kind of pick a random one and just answer it. Like, I want to be involved in knowing what our customers are asking, what they're doing, what they're saying, what they're replying. Anything that's a complaint actually gets brought directly via email to a complaint tracker that me and Grant see. Um, And so luckily, there aren't that many of those. But anytime you serve five or six thousand people a week, you're going to get you know, some, something going wrong. Um, but man, I'm terrible at it, honestly. And <laughs> like I've tried, I, I, I will tell you a funny thing is that when I go away on vacation, I do try to, um, concoct a, uh, <laughs> a, uh, pretty funny. Um, I basically say like, look, I, I'm going to be in a mountain or on a boat or whatever, and you're, I'm not gonna be able to reply. Um, what? And so I, I would make these elaborate stories up <laughs> almost as like a fun piece of art project as to why I couldn't do it. And so one year, um, I, I, every year, every time I went away, I, I basically said, like, I'm going to visit a panda that I adopted and I'm going <laughs> back to Chicago. And it ended the year around Christmas time when I went on break with a with a with a, a picture of a, a baby panda and <laughs> and a really kind of mediocre Photoshop job of me standing there. With the panda. And, and and the Chicago Tribune called me up like three days later going, you know, is it going to the Lincoln Park Zoo? Like, and I was like, no, dear God, it's not. And the following, the following I don't, there is no panda. Like, that's why I went back though. That was my entire reply to that. And then the following year I said, like, um, I like to talk, as you might be able to tell. And so everyone who knows me knows that, like, I can just go on and on, right? And so I, I said I was going to a combination of a tantric sex retreat and silence retreat <laughs> for, for eight days to explore my both inner and outer self. And, um... <laughs>
0: And you know so this, an this is this story. is your out of office
1: reply. That's my out of office reply, and and <laughs> I mean and you know anybody would get that right, and so I thought that was really funny. And then about two years later, I bumped into um, some guy who worked for a very big corporation, and they wanted to do um, some work with with the Olney Group, and it was like kind of a consulting project, very lucrative. And he was looking at me really funny, you know. And I said, like, what's up? And he said, well, you know, I, I really wish we had worked together. But, you know, then you went to that sex retreat. And I, just <laughs> I just couldn't get it past everybody. And I was just like, I was looking at him going like, what are you talking about? And then, and then I remembered like four years earlier, my out of my out of office reply. And uh, I told him like that it was kind of a joke, like the panda. And uh And he did not find any humor in it. And I did. I thought it was hilarious. Even though we lost the business, I thought it was really funny. Um, So if you ever get a really unusual out-of-office reply from me, um, it's fiction, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I love
0: that. Uh, I mean, if you're serious all the time, you're never going to get the actual serious work done. You're going to burn out before that ever happens. I also want to underscore one thing, and then I want to ask you about uh, a black box that you and I have talked about quite a bit, which is publishing. Uh, the fact that you pick a message to reply to, even if it's one, is really important. And I've noticed this certainly with the audience that I have—listeners, uh, readers, etc. It is not physically possible for me to reply to everyone. It would also be anathema to everything that I'm espousing uh, in many of the books. But it, I do want to—I do want to demonstrate that I am listening. And I think that it it goes a really long way, even if you do not personally reply to people, if you are able to prove that you're paying attention. And that seems to resolve a lot, or at least act as a salve for people out there who very seldom feel heard, uh, which does not always necessitate a response. Uh, So I just wanted to point out that it might seem like a drop in the ocean, but it it, it actually has much more, uh, further-reaching implications when you when you do it what what you were describing.
1: Yeah, I I feel like um, it's genuine. First of all, I'm always curious, like what 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 are people writing about um, to the restaurants? What are they writing about to me? Um, my LinkedIn profile, basically, like I don't really read LinkedIn at all. I keep it. Uh, I think it's important to have it. Um, but I don't ever read the messages on there, but in my bio, it basically says, if you can find my email address, I will, I will incite this, I will reply to you. Um, and so that gets rid of all of the marketing crap (laughs) that comes in. But every now and then I get like, you know, a a subject line, um, to the email address that's on there that says basically like, you know, Hey, via your LinkedIn bio and I'll, I'll read that and reply. And it just shows me that, like, hey, there's an actual human on the other line. It's not just a marketing thing. And B, like, they, they really, really do have something that they want to talk about. Um, and so, you know, it's like little things like that are kind of puzzle filters, I guess, that I call them, like where I, I just create like a little bit of a, a, little bit of a barrier. And if, you, um, if you're really into it and you really want to talk to me, you can pretty much find me pretty easily. I'm not that hidden. Yeah and the the detail is really important here
0: the mini hurdle I have a friend I'm not going to mention by name cuz he'll get deluged but he is a very very successful author and journalist and when he is hiring for different positions part time or full time at the bottom of the job description on a job site or wherever it might be in in small print at the very bottom It will say, do not send a message on this platform. Do not send an email, even though email addresses were given earlier. Call this number and leave a voicemail answering the following things. And automatically he takes the pool of a thousand people who are going to do the wrong thing and finds the 10 people who are actually paying attention.
1: Yep. 100%. (laughs) Uh,
0: so publishing, what is, we didn't really, we didn't really talk much about it, but can you give a little bit just a, a a tiny bit of background on the aviary and then some of your uh related publishing investigations, uh, which I think is is not i think is not a mis uh, uh an inappropriate word uh if if you could give people a little bit of of context
1: yeah i mean I'm gonna back up before the aviary just a little bit and just go like you know for a chef doing a cookbook is something that they dream about if they're a serious chef from the time they're 15. You know, just like if you're a basketball player, you want to make the NBA, or you, you know, if you're a runner, you want to be in the Olympics or whatever, like to grant um, to a bunch of chefs having their own ideas in a physical, beautiful cookbook um, is kind of a holy grail for them. It's very sacred. Um, and what was interesting is that um just before Grant was sick we started getting a lot of publishing offers and the natural inclination was to go to what he knew which was Artisan Press um which published the French Laundry book which is one of the best selling um high end cookbooks ever and it's certainly beautiful it was very revolutionary at its time uh i think it was published in about 98 99 something like that and um, the typical publishing deal, like kind of came into us, which was great that they were coming in, and it was, you know, two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollars. And they would basically say, Well, out of that, like you're gonna pay for the designer and the photographer, and you need like a thirty-day photo shoot and you know, here are the guidelines for how many photos you want in the book and you know, to keep costs down and this and that. And I kind of looked at all of that. And all the offers came in within about 10% of each other, which immediately, you know, the hair on the back of my neck, like the spidey (laughs) sense, the spidey sense starts telling me that something back there is pricing this in an unusual way. And then, um, and then I started going like, oh, this is actually like the music industry. (laughs) Very much so. Because I knew, I knew people in, in bands that would get signed to you know, a record label back in the day, and they would get a quarter million dollar advance. Eh, you know, shit, that seems like a lot of money, right? And then all of a sudden, all your studio time comes out of that, and you don't recoup another dime until you've sold you know, X number of records or CDs, or in this case, books. And then in the, in the contract, it actually said, and the restaurant guarantees that they will buy 2,500 books at half of retail price. And I was like, whoa, 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 that's, you know, you're looking at something like $80,000 right there that goes right back to them, in, in essence. <laughs> like, and then I kind of went like, well, I wonder what a book costs to print. And, I mean, I, I just called, I asked them, like, well, how much is this book going to cost to print? Well, I don't really know. And so what they would do is that they would always have layers of people so that they said, well, that's not what I do. Like I am the person that does this. The lawyers give the contract. The printer does the printing. Like I, there's always plausible deniability or plausible ignorance. Yes, willful plausible ignorance. Yeah, um, and and so I I do what I start doing. I'm like, well, let's just Google that up and see what it print costs to print a book, or hey, how many how many copies of the French Laundry book sold? Um, how many copies of 50 other books that we wanted to emulate or that we that we thought were well done sold and um, man it's it's like asking for like you know keys to the Vatican or something when you call a publisher and ask them that. Um, they, I'm sure you know this, right? You probably know now because you've, you've been so entrenched in the industry, like you know your numbers and you might know that of some of your colleagues and friends, right? Um, but if you wanted to actually do a meaningful comparison across the industry, it's, almost impossible to do it, even though that there's a company that does that. Then you start trying to reverse engineer it and you go to the New York Times, which you can go to the New York Times website and just look at how is the New York Times, uh, you know, bestseller list um, created. And on their own site, they say it's a compendium of known publishers, like publishing houses, as well as these like top 50 retailers, you know, back in the day. Um, And it's a gameable system, right? Like the way that, that the publisher publishers want to do it is that they want to ship out all the books at the same time because that's how they're counted for the new york times bestseller list and stuff i should also note it's not only
0: gameable but it's also conversely highly subjective within the new york times so there there's a lot of wiggle room in other words it it is not like the olympics where you're like okay clear gold silver bronze video replay we know exactly how this was was, uh, was, it was
1: tabulated. Um, yeah. So the more that we dug, the more that, um, we got like curious, like more and more curious, a little bit angry actually. And, but Grant was weirdly angry at me cause he's going like, well, dude, like, why do you care? Like, you know, it's like, I've been wanting this since I was 15, and I was like, well, look, if, if this is our budget, it's not going to be the book you want. It's not going to be as good as you want it to be because we're not going to be able to spend six months doing the photography. We're not going to be able to get great pages. We're not going to be able to get a picture of every dish. Like, if what do people cook in a cookbook? Well, they tend to cook those pages where they see a picture of the final dish because you know what? It looks delicious. You know what it's supposed to look like. you got something to emulate at least, Right. And so when we did the specs for the book, um, I had one of the best publishers in America say, if you do that book, there's no way you sell more than 5,000 of them. No way. And no one's going to publish it. And you can't use metric. And you can't use a gram scale. And you can't have that font. And you can't have those pictures in full bleed. And it'll cost way too much to print. And so it took about a month and a half before I got lucky. And I called a print broker who had actually printed W- you know brokered the print job of one of the famous books And I was expecting that the book retailed for $60. It would cost like 15 to print 20. I didn't know anything about it And when he told me it was like two dollars and 23 cents per book to print per 30,000, you know 30,000 copy run I went no way like that and he went well, it's probably less now <laughs> <laughs> Like he thought I meant it was like too much right and and instantaneously I went, oh shit, like everything makes sense. And when I would call <laughs> publishers and tell them this, they would go, oh yeah, but look, like we did 40 different prints, last, you know, 40 different books last year. Only five of them did well. And I'm like, that's your problem, man. Like, I know what we're going to sell well. I don't really give a shit if, if you lost 35% of the time and need to spread your portfolio risk. I'm the one you're spreading it on. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so um, so we decided um, with the Alinea book, um, we put together like 20 pages and Martin made this beautiful stainless steel bracketing system and we shipped it out to eight different publishers we liked, two of which were art houses that had never done um, a, a cookbook. And they all came back and, and same, all the usual criticism except for Aaron Weiner at 10 Speed Press. Yeah. Smart, and, smart, and, smart guy, by the way. Yeah. yeah. And he basically said... I'm gonna make you an unusual offer, no advance at all, and we can negotiate. Essentially, we'll just be the distributor, and we'll negotiate out like what that looks like, and we'll help you with the printing, and we'll help you with the editing, which we're both really good at. And within 10 minutes, we had struck a deal um, whereby any of the books that we bought or sold for ourselves, for our restaurants, we paid actual printing cost, Not wholesale, uh, actual printing cost. Um, anything that they sold and distributed through their channels, they would get about 27% of the sale price, which means that we got 73% of that. Um, these are like state secrets, right? Like, like nobody tells this stuff. And so for years I was walking around with this knowledge where if we sold a hundred thousand books, say, um, that would be the equivalent of selling like 500,000 books on any other deal. And we got to control the quality of it. And we won both the James Beard Award for best um, cooking from a professional point of view, best cookbook of the year. And we won um, – I say we, Martin and, and Laura Kastner won the um, Communication Arts Award. Where if you're a designer, that's like their annual is like – that's like getting the the Oscar, right? Yeah, yeah, similarly for people who don't know, I mean
0: the James Beard Awards are, are also very much like the Oscars.
1: Yeah, so, so we felt – like really vindicated on that um the book still sells this is eight years later um we still sell seven eight thousand copies a year um and when we did the aviary um which is our bar that's a non-bar um, that we talked about earlier um you know we started getting all of the same offers again and this time it was really easy to go like <laughs> just kind of like oh like oh that's cute like you know um and so i should add that we did I wrote a, a book of um Grant and I wrote his memoir together that we didn't use a ghostwriter, we wrote it ourselves called Life on the Line. And for that one, we did a traditional book deal, but after our agent kind of got it halfway, I got on a plane, flew out there, and then brokered the deal myself. Um and I got um a giant multiple of the highest bid by doing essentially a reverse Dutch auction, starting at a really high price and working my way downward can you explain for to people just briefly what that yeah. means yeah yeah so basically like here, here I'll I'll do this like let's say i so i think one of the great problems like to solve one of the black boxes is the agency problem um let's say you want to sell your house Um, you put it on the market and the agent's going to get, I don't know, four to 5% of the sale price. That's a lot for something. It's like your most biggest investment in your life. Um, but they kind of say like they control the information, they control the MLS, all that. Um, will they, if they're the seller's agent, get the highest price for you? And the answer is almost certainly not. Um, because they, let's say a house is going to sell for $500,000. They're going to get 4% of that. Um, that's $20,000. If they get, um, $490,000, um, it's almost no difference to them, right? 400 bucks difference. But if they lose the deal over that last 10000 it's it's a lot. So they want to price a home um, so that it sells quickly, so that they can keep their deal flow going. And they don't really care about maximizing their last dollar. Whereas for you, that last dollar is actually like $9,600. It's a lot more money. Um, so what I do whenever I've sold real estate is that I figure out what the intrinsic value is of the house. Like what's the bare minimum that I'd be willing to sell it for? And I price it just slightly higher than that. And I tell all the agents in the whole town, I will pay you 50% of everything over 10% higher than that. (laughs) And they all say, oh, that's against the real estate ethics code. Or I would never do that deal because it would subvert all my other deals or whatever. And then what happens is two days later, you get like a dozen phone calls. And they've priced it like 40% higher. (laughs) And they're and like it sells in two days. Yeah, that's because amazing. now they're actually working for you, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, similarly, I went into that that publishing negotiation, and I was kind of like, by the way, the agent. Um, it's probably look upable. She's great, like great person. I don't think she even knows that that's what was happening. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't even think she she just knows that, like, hey, she was brought up in this in this industry for this company, and that's the way it works. And she would for sure dispute everything I just said. She would say, I always try to get the highest price. But I went in and I just went, like, look, I'm not gonna spend my time doing this for X. So I need four times that. And she was like, There's no way you'll ever get that. You've never written a book before. And I said, Well, we did the Alinea book. Said, that's a cookbook. It doesn't count. These are words. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so so I, I, I went to the publishers that all bid on it and I just got them all on a, on a conference call and just started at a really high price. And every couple seconds, I went down $10,000. And then one of them blinked and bought it. <laughs> what was the. the... That's a great way. That's a great method of price discovery. Um, like if you think about it, most auctions, even like you go to a charity event or whatever, and they start low and they try to get interest going high. It's often the case that if they start really, really high and start going down, people start going like, oh my god, someone's going to say something. Like, I would pay that. Someone else must as well. They could be off by a factor of 30%, and they'll never even know it because there's only one bid that ever happened. Mm -hmm. So no one knows how off they are.
0: On that phone call, where you're like, hey guys, would love to get you on the phone, and then... Publisher, well, ed, no pub- right away. Well, yeah. well so did, I guess my, my question is: Did they know that they were signing up for a a like Mexican
1: standoff slash? Yeah. Yes, they did. Yes. Oh, they did. They so, did. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so I, I went and met with them all personally. Kind of said, or if like, you're like John, I'd love is- to
0: get you on the phone. And that's like, all right, congratulations, no, 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 guys. No, 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 no.
1: Yeah, you can't. You can't ambush people to a Mexican standoff. Yes, you can't okay. do that. Okay. Um, I, I, I mean, you could. It might be fun, but yeah. I, I didn't do that. Right. I went and talked. Uh, I, I created enticement. I, I, I sold on my ability to actually do it. Um, it was a bit like um, doing the no phones um, with the software. Like I was like, well, if I get a really big contract off, to figure out how to write a book, and that'll be a lot of pressure. Um, and so, so I did that, and. Um, and i and, and i wrote it and i turned it in on time which apparently no one does very very <laughs> rare yeah very yeah because when i is, sent it to them is, like uh, on the day yeah. it was due they went what's this and i'm like that's the manuscript <laughs> yeah it's, and it's, they went oh that's cute
0: <laughs> well it's kind of like showing up at the restaurant on time as a diner and then being seated at the appointed yeah, time it's, it's, very rare. it's just this like open open
1: lie <laughs> open. Do, you turn, do, you, do you turn your books in on time
0: I do actually, yeah, I believe uh, that. Yeah, I do turn my books in on time, uh, and we we could get into that a separate time. No, yeah. I just I want yeah. to ask you a question. No, I do, you know? I, I do, I do not turn them in at the uh, expected length, <laughs> but no I do, longer perhaps. I do, yeah, like I do
1: tend to turn, turn yeah, them in right. on I time. I believe that. <laughs> um, so what happened with the with the aviary is that we like we basically couldn't figure out how to do another book um, because. The Alinea book was such a, a project, and Martin was on to other things, and we didn't want to do it traditionally, and I didn't know anyone who could do what we wanted to do. And then there was this guy, Alan Hemberger, and boy, if, if you get nothing else from from this whole talk, and you've made it this far, um, go see, go Google uh, Alan and Alinea. Um, Alan is a procedural effects artist. Uh, he worked at Weta Studios on all the Hobbit movies, doing like hair and water and things like that. Um, so he writes the physics that then makes the makes the magic, right? Um, and then uh, he worked at Pixar. And while he was at Pixar and his wife, um, Sarah, worked at Industrial Light Magic as a graphics designer. Um, he was given by Sarah a copy of the Alinea book um, to go full circle and became just fascinated with it. Was not a cook, didn't know how to cook, and did the Julie and Julia thing. <laughs> he um, spent five years not only um, cooking his way through the entire book, but also would do things like, well, I don't know where to get this plate, and I've always wanted to learn how to fire porcelain.
0: <laughs> Alan, for people wondering, is A-L-L-E-N. There are also videos of Alan and Alinea.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's an autodidact like this guy learns and learns and learns and is the kind of person that goes to the black box and goes, I'm going to learn how to forge knives and I'm going to learn how to fire porcelain. And by the way, I'm going to cook everything in there and I'm going to take pictures of it. And I'm going to make a book documenting that. And when he asked if he could use, like we had kind of a little email relationship and he came out to a linear once to ask Grant some questions about how to make something cause it wasn't working. And when Grant kind of threw up his arms and go, well, the book might be wrong. <laughs> like, Alan's world view was shattered. It was like the Bible, <laughs> and he was kind of like, "What do you mean it could be wrong?" He goes, "Well, you know, we did have some errata in there. Like, I mean, we documented hundreds of recipes. It could be wrong." And at that point, Alan, like his mentality changed. It's in the video, and and we got to know him, and I got to know him. And when he sent me the book, it wasn't what I was expecting. I was expecting like a homegrown book, and what I got was you know a 400 page beautifully beautifully illustrated, beautifully written, um, book about a person's journey of learning. Um, and it was called the Alinea project. And I had no, no idea that he had done anything like this. And so suddenly, um, I thought to myself immediately, and it's in the intro to the aviary book. Um, I texted him and said, holy shit, you're crazy. (laughs) And I have ideas. And after waiting for like four or five years to do a book on the aviary, I immediately was like, this is the guy to do the book. Now I need to lure him out of Pixar, (laughs) which is about the best place to work in the world. (laughs) And then I found out his wife worked at Industrial Light & Magic and she did all the graphic design. And I was like, this is perfect. You guys need to quit your jobs and move to Chicago. And they flew out, we had some conversations about what that might look like. Um, It was very much a partnership. Um, they would have equity in the book. We would have creative freedom to do it exactly the way we wanted. Um, we knew more about the printing and the bidding and all of that. So I wasn't worried about the economics of it anymore. I was worried about trying to make something really awesome. And right as they were about to say yes, they were, just, they found out that they were going to have a baby. <laughs> so they called me up one day and said, Oh my God. Like, and I was like, Oh, they got cold feet. Oh no. And they said, you know, we're pregnant. We're going to have a baby. And I said, okay, well, we're going to wait a year because there's no way in the world I'm letting you move out out of your comfort zone and have a child and have that change of life. And they thought I was like punting on them just because like in a discriminatory way. And I said, nope, we're not going to do this with anyone else. We'll wait as long as it takes. And about a year and a half later, they moved to Chicago. And we spent the last year and a half um, set up a studio of our own, spent the last year and a half doing this book. Um, did a Kickstarter to just essentially raise awareness for it. We raised almost a half million dollars in the Kickstarter. We've sold about another three hundred thousand dollars a book since then. Uh, it comes out in October. Um, you can go to the alineabook.com. And the coolest part of that website is that if you it's look the at the Alinea Book? Oh sorry, the Aviary right. Oh, right, Nick. Yeah. Bury the lead, Nick. Bury the lead. <laughs> what genius marketing you're right there. Mm. So um, yeah the Aviary But if you the coolest part of that is other than of course your ability to buy said book is um, Alan kept a blog on there called Our Progress. And in it, he details every single aspect of what it takes to make a book like this, um, right down to line screens and compositing photos of, you know, like one of the things that every single book publisher told me is that you can't sell a, a cocktail book for more than $30. There's no market for it. And you don't need pictures because it's just liquid in a glass. And I think we blew that out of the water with what the book looks like. Um, I think that because th- certain things like fire are really hard to photograph, um, there's a great picture in there of this one cocktail where we, where we spray um, some anise and we light it on fire and it, it creates an aroma into the bowl that it's served in. It's called Loaded to the Gun Walls. Um, it's a Batavia Rock cocktail. And like, that took a composite of 18 different photographs. And so he breaks down the photography techniques and also the New York Times bestseller list. And I showed him like how, you know, Google target marketing works and Facebook ads work and all that. And all of a sudden he went, holy shit, I had no idea you could do this. So we are going completely without a distributor or publisher at this time. Um, and I think we're going to set – a I, man, I don't know. Like I, I'm either completely delusional. It wouldn't surprise me if we sold a half a million of these. Yeah, and in it's, the next it's,
0: two or three years, and it's yeah, it's not a not a nine ninety five book either, which it shouldn't be, right? I mean, this no, is no, it's
1: it's, it's eighty five dollars. Um, we've invested close to a million dollars all the way in around it, and it looks like it. I think, I hope. Um, yeah, from what from
0: it, what I've seen, it looks like it would cost more than that.
1: Yeah, well, we did it. You know, we did it all ourselves too. Um, yeah. You know, it's really like a five person project. Um, it's, it's deep enough that if, if a professional gets it, they're going to learn a lot. Um, but I'd say about 35, 40% of it can be done at home because unlike the Alinea book where, Hey, you got to go out and buy a duck, like, you know, and your local grocery might not have this kind of duck or whatever. If you, um, need some Florida rum or, you know, um, you know, a certain kind of tequila or whatever, you just go to your local liquor store and it's exactly the same thing that we use. Um, you know, that product is universal. I read somewhere. Not that I don't think
0: it's taking us too far afield I read somewhere that you consider yourself a tequila guy or at least in part a tequila guy do you have any favorite tequilas or concoctions
1: well there's so I, I just I'm going to do a little video promo for um for the book that we just filmed last week where essentially I, I work with Eric Jeffus who's one of our bartenders in the office which is our little speakeasy below the Aviary which um, is amazing
0: if if people have the, yeah, ch- the opportunity they, sh- they should check it out
1: it's basically Grant just said hey everything upstairs people are going to think it's a linear smoke and mirrors we need to prove we can make a real cocktail so one of the, the foundational cocktails for me is is a daiquiri it's uh, i say three ingredients and a million ways to fuck it up <laughs> <laughs> you know it's it's just um lime sugar and rum that's all it is and uh, and yet like most bars you go into will make a terrible daiquiri or they'll blend it or blah, blah, blah. Right. But a great daiquiri is really, really transformative. So did a video on that. Um, and then I always make a half mezcal margarita. That's my favorite drink. All I'm doing is I'm taking some reposado and a little bit of mezcal and equal weights along with, um, some, uh, you know, a uh, grand Marnier or, or Cointreau equivalent and, um, lime and simple syrup. That's it. That's all there is to it. Um, man, I love simple stuff like that. And then we have a whole section in the book on old whiskeys, dusty bottles, um, old gins. Like there's a growing movement to kind of rediscover some of the distilleries in America that were really, really, really great. Um, that don't exist anymore. Um, that were more artisanal at the time. You can still find those bottles, um, around. Uh, it's a little bit easier than like, you know, someone like wine collecting or something like that. And, um, man it's it's like an endlessly fascinating thing i don't consider myself a cocktail person 10 years ago i I really loved wine um i felt like from a health perspective it was better as well but just like anything else if you have a well-constructed cocktail and something of high quality um it's an additive thing like you can have it in a meal and it can make the meal better um you know whereas like you know a vodka tonics just boozing (laughs) <laughs> um, and it's just getting drunk. Um, that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to make things that are – it's really a culinary approach to cocktails. And, uh, man, it's, it's endlessly fascinating just like anything else in in this world. And the, the, the I would
0: also say just contrasting, say, uh, someone who wants to recreate something from Alinea, which you certainly could do. I mean, Alan proved that with something from the aviary, there's also a tremendous amount of theater and presentation dynamism that you can create with cocktails that does not have to be super expensive or super complicated. Uh, That, uh, I mean, certainly you guys are able to go as complex as you want to go, which is stunning. And I've spent
1: time at the aviary, but it's, it's it's, you can easily make um some ice with Patriots bitters in it or something like that and then as the ice melts in the cocktail it's going to change the flavor and it's right. going to look really cool too um doing some of these things at home is is not hard um i did a dinner party once where it was like you know a cocktail party probably had 40 people at my house and each room in my house had all of the ingredients for the cocktail and then little instructions on how to make it themselves. So that took away the need for a bartender because they're terrible. Anyway, anyone that you'd bring in and you know that you, you know, a caterer or something like that. And the other cool thing is that people got really into it. They went like, Oh, like, now I know how to make an old fashioned. I know how to make a Manhattan. Um, you know, uh, I, the one that I discovered that party was a Frisco sour it had like Benedictine whiskey and lemon, you know, it was really delicious. So, it can be it can, it can be more than just like a strong cocktail it can be really delicate and interesting
0: mm-hmm. and people can learn all about this at theaviarybook.com. is that right that's right yep well nick i've i've two rapid fire questions that are unrelated and then i think we're going to we're going to we're going to bring this neat and tidy round one podcast uh to uh, to a, to a close but we've talked about books and uh, everybody should not only check out the aviary book but also if they have a chance go to the aviary it is it is tremendous and you can also get some delicious bites and food uh, at least last time I was there still uh, can at the yep. aviary. So it is a bit of a, uh, I hesitate to call it a workaround, but <laughs> you guys have some very, very popular establishments. If you want to sample the food, this is also a great way to do it. Uh, it and the drinks are just incredible. So it's, it's a real sort of destination that makes a trip to Chicago uh, worth it in and of itself. So I, I would recommend not only checking out the book, but also checking out a lot of what you guys are up to. Aside from that, books you have gifted the most to other people, outside of those that you have made yourself, what are the books that you have gifted the most to other people?
1: Yeah, I, I named one of them already. Um, "Fooled by Randomness." Almost everyone in my office is forced to read that, <laughs> um, you know. Um, and I've I've definitely given that away. Um, boy, that's a tricky one because I just like I said, I can't remember I can't remember books um, very well, but that's certainly probably number one um on a business side of things and then the on the other side um i tend to give away what i would call vintage art books so it's not a book people can buy i'm I'm sorry to say but occasionally i'll be at like a used bookstore and i'll find some of these great old art books and i, I buy a few of them and then when i when i want to thank someone for something i, I send them that
0: peregrinations of an epicurean something like that
1: yeah <laughs> i mean at the end of the day like I I bought, like, when I want to give someone something, I try to make it something that you, and I really want to make it a great gift. Um, I try to get it something that you can't buy, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, I bought an old typewriter, and I write, when I write a thank you note, I type it up on the old typewriter. And it is the most confounding thing to people. (laughs) Because they look at it and they go, "How did you do that?" I'm like, "On a 1922 typewriter." Um, it, it, it's like a personal artisanal thing. Um, yeah. But I, I know that that's not what you're getting at. No, no, no. Like, I, I can't. I can't really think of. I can't really think of like the number one. I'm sure once we 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 end this, I'll immediately think of it. And I, if I do, I'll I'll send it to you so you can link to it. I think the answer the
0: answer is more interesting with the typewriter. So I I, I think uh, what I'm getting at was whatever you just offered. So that's perfect. <laughs> and if you come up with anything Great. else, we can put it in the show notes. Uh, this is this next one can be tough uh, at times for folks. But the billboard questions. So metaphorically speaking, non-commercial, no advertising. But if you could get a a word, a quote, a sentence, a question up on a billboard to transmit something to millions or billions of people does anything come to mind that you might put on that billboard
1: I don't know why this came to mind but the but the word would be pause hmm. As it, I have no idea why that came to mind but I think in in talking through this whole thing I you know it's you kept asking me like why are you digging this black box or whatever or it'd be like um curiosity like and I think those are two I'm thinking of those in the same way I'm not saying pause, like stop. I'm saying think, right? And so I think, um, you know, the, the hallmark of of the people that I like as friends the best is what we try to instill in our kids, uh, you know, and, and the reason I like my wife so much and all that is that intellectual curiosity is everything. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't know, how do you get that on a billboard? I, I think pause or you know, be curious or something like that. I know it's cliche, but i I, I think that's the think the thread that ties everything together.
0: Yeah, you do pause a lot, even though on a macro level you seem to be moving uh, <laughs> at hyper speed a lot of the time. There are a lot of pauses built into that speed, if that makes sense. From what I've noticed, I mean, you were Simon, you are simultaneously one of the craziest fuckers I know and uh, least craziest fuckers. I know if that makes,
1: that's, that's a great compliment. (laughs) Thank you. I'll take, I'll take it. (laughs) I'll take it.
0: And, uh, where can people find you? I know you have, of course, the, the dot group.com you have explore talk.com the aviary book.com, which is the sort of the most timely for people to check out right now. If people want to say hello or follow you on social, where are the best, uh, best, best places, best handles for that?
1: Yep, uh, Instagram, uh, which is n kokonis k o k o n a s, and uh, Twitter is uh, Nick Kokonis n i c k. And uh, hey, it's all Googleable, right? Like so. Beyond <laughs> that, if you could figure out my email address, I'll probably answer. Although, <laughs> given the given the reach of, of of your podcast, perhaps I will be inundated. It might take a while.
0: Yeah, that might be a hug of death situation, but we will. That's okay.
1: <laughs> TBD. <laughs> good problem to have, I good, suppose. Good problem to have. Uh, Nick.
0: This was a blast. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really Thank appreciate you, Sam. it. Thank you, And uh, many more conversations to be had. This, I think another trip to Chicago may be in order soon. I was going to
1: say, I hope we see you here soon.
0: I know. I need to get back. And to everybody listening, we've made mention of the show notes, links to everything we've discussed, which you will be able to find at tim.blog forward slash podcast, as with this episode and uh, certainly every other episode. And until next time of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to 4 That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Web, which makes a CBD oil, a hemp extract that has become one of my go-to tools. Now, I have never really talked about CBD oil. And cannabis has never really been the plant for me. I know we're talking about hemp. Uh, but nonetheless, after several nights of inexplicable insomnia, this was about a year ago, I just could not get to sleep to save my life. And after other fixes failed, so melatonin, California poppy extract, da, 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 an elite athlete introduced me to this non-psychoactive extract. And bam! problem solved i had some of the best sleep that i've had in months now i don't use sleep aids on a daily basis but this has become part of my toolkit and i hope to be exploring other applications soon cbd oil products have exploded in popularity in the health and wellness and fitness worlds and Charlotte's webb is one of the top players that offers broad spectrum hemp extract with cbd in the form of oils capsules and topical products Charlotte's Web products will not get you high, so that maybe that is good news, maybe bad news to you, but it does have some powerful benefits and uh, applications, and it works with your body's existing endocannabinoid system. Endo meaning from within, like endo versus exoskeleton, for instance. So endocannabinoid system works with your body. Some of the most common uses are for relief from everyday stressors, help in supporting restful sleep, which is what I most often use it for, Uh, To bring about a sense of calm and focus, a lot of my friends use it for that, CBD is also known or becoming known for helping athletes to recover from exercise-induced inflammation. Charlotte's Web Hemp Extract has naturally occurring terpenes, flavonoids, and other valuable hemp compounds that work synergistically to heighten positive effects, sometimes referred to as the entourage effect, which you guys can look up, making it more complete than single compound CBD alternatives, or at least... That is what I've been told. Uh, I do not know much about CBD alternatives nor single compound. In any case, check it out. This stuff has really worked for me. So jump over to cwhemp.com forward slash Tim. CW is in Charlotte's web. Cwhemp.com forward slash Tim to take a quick quiz, which will determine the best product For your particular aims, lifestyle, etc. And they ship to all 50 states. Charlotte's Web are offering listeners of this podcast 10% off of their purchase. While there are some exclusions, I personally use the extra strength CBD oils or the extra strength capsules. And uh, you can see what might be a fit for you on that page. And there is a 30-day risk-free guarantee. So why not try it out? So get 10% off of your purchase at cwhemp.com forward slash tim and disclaimer these statements have not been evaluated by the food and drug administration this product is not intended to diagnose treat cure or prevent any disease enjoy this episode is brought to you by 99designs 99designs is the global creative platform that makes it easy for designers and clients to work together from logos to apps business cards packaging to books You name it, 99designs is the go-to design resource for any budget. Right now, my listeners, that's you guys, can get $50 off a logo and brand identity package from 99designs, plus a free upgrade that lets you promote your project on the platform, which is an additional $99 value, by checking out 99designs.com forward slash Tim50. That's tim M five zero. So 99designs.com forward slash Tim50. As many of you know, I've used 99designs for many, many years now. I've used them for book covers, including mock-ups for The 4-Hour Body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller, illustrations for the multi-volume The Tao of Seneca, so ebook e-book series, basically, and other graphic design projects. And I've been very impressed by the quality of their designers and illustrators. And you can check out all sorts of stuff like The Tao of Seneca ...to get an idea. Uh, They're they're really mind-boggling. Most recently, I used 99designs to update the illustrations and layout of my 5 Morning Rituals ebook. This is a PDF that I offer as an incentive to get people to sign up for my newsletter. The illustrations inside are gorgeous, and I loved working with the designer who we ended up selecting for the project. You can take a look at that. This is a real-world example of the type of thing that I use 99designs for at 99designs.com forward slash Tim50... 99design's designer search tool connects you directly with one designer based on design category or industry specialization, style, skill level, availability, and more. You just check off the boxes that you need to satisfy, the criteria you want, and it will bring up the best matches. Or you can start a contest. You invite the entire community to take a shot at your project, and then you pick your favorite. So, to get $50 off your first logo and brand identity package, as well as additional promotion on the platform with a free upgrade, please visit 99designs.com forward slash Tim50. That's 99designs.com forward slash Tim50, and click on the link on the landing page. Check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim50.